So, Mike, last week we had a wonderful Ravel recording. Yeah, I remember that. Still listening to it myself, in fact. That we both liked a lot. Yeah, and great sound. Yeah, it was nice performances uh, and fabulous sound. And it's one I'm thinking about purchasing. So I was looking online and getting a chuckle out of the reviews <laughs> <laughs> on Amazon. What did they say? What could it possibly be? Well, the, review, the, said about that? the negative reviews were not about the performance. They were about the recording. Yeah. Now, we <laughs> thought the recording was fabulous, but they well, were I complaining. So there yeah. was a couple that complained that they had to turn the volume up too high to hear the soft parts. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you know, that's, um, that's the way it's supposed to be. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> Soft parts are supposed to be soft. Oh, man. We, we're every, Everybody's losing their sense of uh, what music is supposed to sound like now. It's driving me crazy. The last vestige of uh, the loudness wars where we don't usually have to worry about too much compression is in classical music. A lot of times yeah. in jazz, too. And on that recording, which... Well, it, it used to be jazz Jazz people were usually audiophiles. You know, right. They were even bigger audiophiles than classical people right. were, which is interesting. But now, you know, they use... they. You get a lot of non-compressed um, jazz recordings still, but right. they're, they're going that way now. They're trying to make it sound more like a pop record. I don't well, like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. multi-tracked, overdubbed, uh, you know, and then fiddled with. Whereas the best uh, recordings, I think, are some of the ones done in one room back in the late 50s, early of 60s. Of They still sound better than a lot of the new things. Yeah, I really think that if jazz came back, the, you know, if they really want jazz to come back, they got to start recording it in a single room like that again. Yeah. Just one take leave all the mistakes in, well, you know, I mean, go for it, you know? That's how the uh, Delvon Lamar uh, organ trio records, uh, no headphones, all in one room, and they leave the dirty bits in there. Uh, yeah. So I think that's what gives it the good vibe. To me, anyway, it's jazz. I thought that Ravel recording, you know, that had just amazing dynamic range. And, yeah, I uh, thought so too. That was a cool yeah. part. Anyway, I just, just got turn, 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 Just turn your air conditioning and heating off and listen to it. You'll hear it properly, yeah. you know. I can see how they... The heating, you know, heaters yeah. would, uh, you know, the hum of those things would cover up the lower bits, you know, the softer bits. But uh, yeah, that was a pretty great recording, especially okay. like at the end when they do Bolero, because it fifteen minute crescendo. by the almost nothing and it's just yes. this constant crescendo. By the end, yeah. you really should be, uh, you know, your hair should be blowing back. Room to you, grow <laughs> on that one. Anyway, right. listeners, joining us mid-thought, mid-conversation, you're listening to Adult Music the podcast with music for the mature mind. This is Russ over here and Mike's over there on that mic. This is Mike over here. Yeah, Mike on the mic as the Beastie Boys once said. Yeah. We haven't done any Beastie Boys albums. Uh, usually. Well, they're, they're, they're done now, though. <laughs> it's like they're, uh, they have uh, gone the way of uh, all the fine bads of the past. Got old, broke yeah. up. One of them passed away, too, which is sad. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, we'll have some other... Uh, actually, we're not going to have anything beastly. We're going to have uh, something <laughs> more angelic uh, this week. Yeah, I guess so. And we're hmm. up to episode 58. 5-8. Five, 58, uh, well. Here, getting close to 60. And, uh, well, before we get going into our music that we focus on uh, discussing here, which is usually classical jazz sometimes we venture into something in between those categories or a little bit world music kind of things that uh, everything we'll talk about if you're wondering what are they talking about uh, look in the episode description and you should find links uh, to spotify and apple music for everything we'll talk about Uh, the first recording we're going to have this evening is another hyperion 
least that's not available on streaming. But I'll give They're you the link. Great label, though. I got to keep the great label. talking about those uh, those albums. But yeah. uh, anyway, I'll give you a link to the uh, Hyperion website. You can uh, listen to the samples there if you want to. Yeah, we're gonna have a Hyperion one it. next week again, though. So oh. <laughs> it's gonna be uh, <laughs> listening to all this stuff. Uh, you're gonna have to buy a lot of stuff, I guess, if you want to hear it. Now, if you want to hear uh, music in uh, also CD quality uh, and all of our music that we discuss here in one place, you can uh, click the first link in the description, which is the playlist on Deezer, where I put everything uh, into one playlist every week. You can also listen to the podcast there. So both the playlist and podcast are on Deezer, our preferred streaming platform, where you can look us up under adult music podcast now if you can't see the full description or list on whatever app or platform you listen to us on because i know there's a, a lot of different ones people find us on you can always come over to our host site podbean that's p-o-d-b-e-a-n one word and find us there all the links are easy to follow for every episode in the past and this one now if you enjoy the podcast uh, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. If you take a moment, give us a ranking, write a review. Uh, that helps us get listed in the recommended categories under the uh, music areas on each platform, which helps us grow our audience. And we appreciate that a lot. You can also find us on Facebook. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. Yeah, we have a a page there you can uh, message or comment and if you want to send us something more direct any comments or questions we'd be happy to hear from you by email our email address is adult music podcast all one word at gmail.com yeah all right so anything happening this week before we uh launch into the uh the first album here i don't know i'm trying to hmm. think there's, there's lots, of, lots of releases in april in the jazz category uh yeah, coming out left and right and um, coming out too. re-releases and unreleased uh, things. I think there's a new uh, Freddie Hubbard uh, recording, oh. uh, never released from the 80s, that came out this week. I've got to listen to that. And, yeah, and you had mentioned that Ravel recording too, that mm -hmm. John Wilson, um, he just released, uh, that ensemble just released a new album on SACD again right. um, of music by, who was it, Franz Schrecker, and I think there's Richard Strauss and... Um, Eric Wolfgang Korngold. We're going to have to hear that one when yeah. I finally get my hands on it because I'm, I'm not going to listen to this one from Deezer. I'm going to want the SACD for this one. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. Oh, there's a new Renitsky release we need to mention. That's right. Renitsky. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that eventually. Not next week, but soon. Okay. Yeah. Orchestra Works yeah. 4, and it's a uh, ballet pantomime, uh, oh. I think. And, uh, well, yeah, Daniel sent us the. Uh, notes and score and i guess there's hints in the score, the score to what's to what's going on in you know the movement and the scenes so i think it's good to have i mean one day i might actually sit down with the scores and work out what's yeah. you know it might be helpful on, on this one i listened to yeah. it uh, once already in the morning but i'll use those uh, scores and guides uh, to have another deeper listen soon okay well let's let's uh, jump in here and i'm going to go with something a little uh you know, we have a fairly adventurous um, classical uh, program this week, but we're starting sort of light with uh, Violin Sonatas by Felix Mendelssohn. And these are on the Hyperion label, so you're not you're only going to be able to hear samples of these on the Hyperion website. Uh, they're not on any streaming platform for some reason. Hyperion, one of the major small labels out there, or uh, not small labels, you want to say, call them a boutique label. 
<laughs> you know, you got the giants, you know, Deutsche Grammophone, Decca, and all those. And um, then you have all these boutique labels now, like Alpha, Hyperion, Shandos, all those. Um, okay, this is, and this is a, a, a violinist I happen to really like, Alina Ibrahimova um, on the violin, and uh, Cedric Tebergian on the piano, her, um, her uh, performing partner of on many albums and concerts. Um, Ibrahimova is is Russian, so I'm kind of, you know, you know much, much as I, I, I'm absolutely, much as I'm, you know, against the whole Russian invasion of the Ukraine, I certainly don't want to see Russian artists being uh, left out of the concert hall because of that. It seems really ridiculous to me, you know. It wasn't really their decision, and uh, they need to make a living, you know. What so really please. concerns me is, you know, yeah. that uh, now they're canceling these people who won't publicly disavow Putin. Uh, yeah. Like they might have to go home again someday, and uh, yeah. you know who knows where they'll end up if they do that. Um, yeah, I wish they would leave artists and other uh, public figures out of this uh, conflict. But what can you do? Anyway, we get to hear Bergimo. She's a fantastic uh, violinist. She's based in uh, London these days, I believe. Anyway, that's her her home. Mm. Anyway. Felix Mendelssohn, Violence and Eyes. This is the latest in a series of uh, recordings that she's made for Hyperion with uh, Tibergian on the piano. He's French, by the way. Um, let's, and they've all been fantastic, I just want to say. We, we actually talked about a re- record she made last year. Um, was it, no, it wasn't Isai. It was the other one, uh, Paganini. Yeah, we kind of we liked it, but we mm. I think we liked some of the older ones uh, better. Anyway, this is Violence and Eyes by Mendelssohn. And uh, these are not well-known works, but uh, they're pretty great and they're pretty enjoyable. Um, Felix Mendelssohn. Now, remember, Felix had a, an older sister named Fanny Mendelssohn, who was also a composer and didn't have much of a uh, a public career because she basically wasn't allowed to because of her, you know her father and um, or their father and um, just the 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 way things were done at the time you know it, it wasn't if you were like a, an upper class person and, and you were a woman you it, it was unbecoming for you to be in perform well not performing but um in public life say composing and things like that um not a popular um <laughs> stance today anyway we will have more women composers coming up on the program uh mendelssohn Felix Mendelssohn, one thing that we need to really remember is that the Mendelssohns were a lot like the Mozarts, where Mozart had an older sister too, who was also a piano prodigy. But Mozart was one of the great prodigies of all time, as was Felix Mendelssohn. They're almost like parallel, these two families. Mm-hmm. Um, Mendelssohn, was, Felix, was a pianist, of course, a composer, as we all know. It's what we mostly know him for today. He was also an excellent draftsman and watercolorist. He was a poet. He was a translator. He could speak Greek, Latin, English, French, pretty good Italian, as well as his native German. And he also played the violin. Wow. See, this is why I think people don't like classical music, because they hear that these guys could do all these things, and like, oh, man. It's like everybody's Elon Musk over here or something. <laughs> you know, they just they just seem to be able to do anything they want. You know, it's really yeah, amazing to me. Wow. There are a few people like that around today, but I don't know. I don't think we we respect them as much anymore. Um, yeah, he was also as a violinist. He was a professional level of violinist. He could have made a living uh, doing that, but I don't think he would have been like one of the virtuosic ones, mm-hmm. like Paganini or somebody like that at the time. So uh, he knew something about the violin. 
And uh, he wrote uh, several violin sonatas. Only one of them was published. Uh, the other three that are on this uh, album were left in manuscript, including the first one that we hear, Violin Sonata in F Major. Um, <laughs> MWVQ26 um, oh. from 1838. All right. Well, the, we need that catalog number, though, because this one was never published. So it was only in uh, manuscript. So there's no opus number for it. Okay. Um, so that's one way to identify it. Um, it's the biggest and the most mature of all the works on this album. And yet, it was never published during his lifetime. Hmm. Um, go figure. The reason why was because he was revising it. And he, I think he died before he finished revising the first movement so there are two versions of the first movement and on this album we're hearing the original version that he didn't revise because it i guess it fits in better with the other two movements okay this is the most ambitious of mendelssohn's violin sonatas and um let's take a look the first movement is pretty big allegro vivace so it's very fast and lively and he starts out with this big burst of sound and i thought as is always the case with this duo, the playing is fantastic. Um, these two are very sensitive to each other's playing, sort of like it's one of those you know, one you know one people two heads sort of thing, or where one head two people. I don't know, but they they seem to uh, really um, pick up on what each other is doing really well. Of course, they've rehearsed this piece a lot. I'm sure uh, there's some really beautiful glittering runs that the two participate in. Uh, we get a repeat of the exposition in this movement. So when you hear all the, the two themes in this sonata movement, a sonata has two themes, which are then developed and then repeated at the end. The second one is in the same key as the first one at the end, but not at the beginning. All right, that's a, in a nutshell, that's what a sonata is. Um, and this, this and you, oftentimes um, there'd be a double bar with two dots and you'd have to repeat the opening so the people in the in the who are listening to this piece can get another listen to the themes before they start being developed these are often skipped today because we have recordings and um you know if i think the these days too if you're playing a repeat you kind of have to vary the material a little bit so it takes a little bit of creativity um ibrahimov's tone which i really like is small very expressive it's very well fitted for chamber music it feels very personal like you're just having like she, she like she's telling you all these like personal things i really like that about her mm. it's not this gigantic tone like someone like hillary hahn has you know where she's really i feel like she's better in uh playing with an orchestra because she's always making these big kind of public statements in her playing or isabel faust is another one with a gigantic tone um Ibrahim is small, but it's really intimate, and I like that. It's It feels it's good to listen to. She's also a very athletic player in the bold opening theme, and so is Tabergi, and this takes a lot of... Um, th this is pretty amazing. This is um, played at breakneck speed, really. It's, it's, it's not too fast. It's the way it's supposed to be played. It's got good energy in the faster passages. Um, the development section, if you're... If you have your scorecard, it starts at about 5 minutes and 36 seconds. <laughs> Not that you're going to be able to go to Deezer and listen to it anyway. With a light violin melody over an even lighter piano. And the recapitulation seems to up the energy even further. Like it's almost like it, coming out of the, uh, the development section, we get to the main theme. Everything is familiar. We're all excited and things just kind of go up a notch or something. It's pretty amazing. It's a pretty enthralling performance of a fantastically lively movement a really nice surprise uh, for me i had never heard this before second movement adagio this is the slow movement uh this follows the 
the uh, Baroque pattern. In fact, this is a classical work, but the Baroque pattern, Fast, Slow, Fast, that Vivaldi set up years ago. Um, so we have the, the slow song-like middle movement here. Again, these two performers work so well together. There's beautiful expression in the movement. And... Um, the, the piano recording in this I thought was a little odd because um, I thought the piano uh, at the lower end, it kind of lost its tone somehow in the recording. I don't think it was the pianist's fault. Um, I should really listen again, though, before I kind of say that. Did you pick anything up like this in this? In the uh... Well, actually, it's not with the playing. Uh, it's, yeah, not the playing. It's with the recording or the mic placement. I, I found right from the first movement, the piano sound is a bit murky. And okay. I also felt yeah. that the balance... Yeah, well, it wasn't clean like the, uh, exactly. the Porcarella, which we're going to hear later. Okay, we'll talk about that. And I also felt that the balance is too piano heavy, and the piano gets lost in the tone of the piano. Or the violin, rather, the violin, gets lost yeah. in the tone of the piano a little bit too much. I found her violin tone to be quite warm and sensitive, yeah, like but it it's, it's small. Yeah, like and I mentioned. I just yeah. felt that in some places where obviously, you know, this is a violin piece and the accompaniment was sort of swallowing up the yeah. main line of the violin. And so I thought just the balance is off and then the tonal quality of the piano is a bit odd. Uh, and that carries on throughout, although the later pieces I've found an improvement uh, in yeah. both things. So. In this particular piece, especially in this, the middle movement, I could swear that the piano was distorting in the louder passages. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really sure. I, I didn't put on the headphones to check that. But uh, yeah, that, it's a, that's a danger with Ibrahimova. And someone like her is, of course, going to have like the same partner all the time just because they need to know to be sensitive around her. But um, I'd, I'd say, by the way, it's called a violin sonata, but this really is a sonata for violin and piano. The piano... Has, is an equal partner. It's got so many uh, expressive and really important parts to play. It's not just accompanying. So I think this would be like, you know, in the style of Beethoven, really. Mendelssohn was really under Beethoven's spell for most of his very short life. So, um, yeah, there's that. Okay, third movement and the final one, Asai Vivace, which means um, very fast. Asai is very Lively virtuosic movement that requires to be the players to be in sync in the fast passages. Then they take those passages very fast indeed. And I thought they remained in sync. Um, uh, very impressive playing. The music never stops. So there's no time for breath. Um, so it was a pretty exciting final movement. Okay, moving onwards to tracks four through six. This is Violin Sonata in F minor, Opus 4 from 1823. This is the uh, only published... Um, violin sonata, the, the only sonata that Mendelssohn published during his lifetime. Um, if you if you're cataloging these, it's MWV Q12. I don't even. That's a new um, marking. MWV something Verlag or something. Werk of Verlag or something. Mendelssohn Werk Verlag. I imagine. I didn't even look that up. <laughs> anyway, so like the BWV for Bach. <laughs> Bach Werk Verlag. Yeah. Okay, this was written along with other works for Edward Rietz, one of uh, Mendelssohn's early violin teachers. How nice. Imagine that. Mm. You teach a kid the violin. He's, next thing you know, he's writing violin sonatas, uh, dedicating violin sonatas to you. Mm. All right, this one starts out um, 
this is I think this is something that Beethoven started. It's got an introduction, which is played adagio, slow, and then there's a main section, the allegro moderato, moderato which is where the um, the main themes all come in, the two themes that are then going to develop. And this one starts rather unusually with um, Ibrahimova solo, playing solo, uh, playing a poetic line in her lower range that reaches up toward the end. Okay. The pianist comes in at about 45 seconds in, and he gets a poetic line to play as well. We finally hear them play together just after a minute into the piece, which is kind of interesting. It's, like, it's almost like they're two strangers wandering the woods, and then they sort of find each other at about a minute into the piece. The piano plays the second subject alone after two minutes, and then the violin joins in. So everybody gets a little um, chance uh, this movement comes across as amiable once the allegro moderato starts. You know, it's a little dark and sort of uh, searching in the beginning. But then once the main section starts, it gets a little lively, and it's it's pretty. It's nice. It actually still sounds fairly slow during the uh, allegro moderato. It does say moderato, so it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be very fast. But uh, I thought it was a little slow. Um, the piano is playing figures in the bass to give a sense of continuity. Um even you know i guess they get away with it because of that figure that the piano is playing he's kind of connecting everything with the bass line there's a recapitulation at seven minutes in it ends on a kind of weak cadence and sort of fizzles out uh what they what they used to call a feminine cadence god knows what they would call it now a uh, feminine cadence is not the strong you know it's the new like masculine cadence that's the new masculine cadence is the feminine <laughs> cadence <laughs> the feminine cadence was the one that kind of just kind of fades away. It's, it doesn't sound strong and final, or but maybe it is still a cadence. Does know? the girly boy cadence? No, oh, the girly boy cadence, maybe. As Arnold would say. As Arnold would say. No oh, boy. Oh, uh oh, yeah, I don't know. We're gonna get cancelled here. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, but if anybody's got their headphones on, I, I live near a, a, a big tourist area, and now the weather has um, changed. To something it was today was a really beautiful day here in Kyoto, and there are just people walking outside my house throughout this podcast, uh, talking so you can hear them in my headphones. Oh, so you probably can too, or maybe it's just through the window and they're not being picked up by the mic. I don't know. So, anyway, I'm right on the ground floor. Anyway, second movement, Poco Adagio. This is the slow movement, it's pretty typical of Mendelssohn, really. The uh, beginning is all piano, meaning played by the piano, not soft piano okay the violin repeats the theme with the piano accompanying afterwards uh, the material darkens after two minutes for the middle section uh, with the piano playing arpeggiated figures as the violin takes the melody third movement allegro agitato uh, the piano again introduces the theme uh, by itself solo this happens a lot in this piece hmm. it seems to be like a thing with him with um, one instrument will kind of begin everything and then the other instrument will just come in later uh, and then the violin repeats the theme with the piano um, when it finally comes in. It's a catchy theme that repeats like a rondo. And Ibrahim, this is probably a rondo movement, in fact. Um, Ibrahimova sounds great throughout. Um, Tibergian has a lot of repeated notes to play and manages to make them and the rest of his material expressive. Uh, there's a lovely approach to the final cadence, <laughs> which is a which is a masculine cadence. And I like the brief ending notes, an appealing finale. It's a big climax, very passionate at the end of this one. Yeah. By the way, that's what a masculine cadence sounds like, if anyone's interested in that <laughs> The first movement is a feminine cadence. Uh, Beethoven often ends his works with feminine cadences. If you think of the Tempest Sonata, 
Um, a lot of uh, piano students will play that last movement with all the arpeggios, and it ends on a feminine cadence. Okay, tracks seven to nine, Violin Sonata in F major. Uh, this is another um, unpublished one. It was in manuscript. Um, this is... Uh, MWVQ7, written in 1820. So this is the earliest of the works written here. And this one's pretty conservative in the sense that uh, he, he really sounds like he's following the instructions of an older kind of style. Mm. Uh, there are quirky progressions and interruptions reminiscent of C.P.E. Bach, one of our favorite composers. Yeah. And that especially happens in the third movement. Mm. Uh, this is a small work compared to the previous two. Uh, the first movement, Allegro, we can hear C.P.E. Bach's influence here a little bit and mostly Beethoven's um, it's brief it's a brief movement at four minutes and 30 seconds uh, the duo do a lot to make the piece expressive manipulating tone on piano passages and attenuating volume beautifully after a loud entry the second movement on Dante also pretty short it's a theme this is really unusual that this is short because it's a theme with four variations alternating between minor and major the theme is pretty square with clear, predictable cadences. Uh, the variations don't do much with the theme. Uh, this is uh, pretty straightforward, nice, but not terribly interesting. Um, it's a, there is a pretty variation with pizzicato in the violin and a creeping staccato approach by the piano. And it's a good performance by the duo, of course. Third movement, presto, very fast, modeled on the principal theme of Haydn's Symphony 102. Of the 104 that Haydn wrote, man, <laughs> that the sheer amount of music that some of these people turned out—you just—they must have just been sitting at a desk all day writing. They—they they had to have people copying stuff for them because they couldn't have possibly done all this by themselves. I don't know. Although I guess knows. they weren't on Instagram back then, so yeah. But even now, with computers, people can't produce music this fast. Mm. Okay, it starts out racing like a perpetual mobile movement. You can hear most of the CPE Bach influence in this movement. There are a lot of uh, unexpected pauses, and they, they happen kind of often, too. So you can kind of almost tell that he's uh, using CPE as a model. All right. The last track is a fragment, probably from the late 1820s. Uh, this is called Violence Sonata in D. Now, it doesn't say major or minor because it kind of plays with both modes. We wouldn't really know. I, I guess if you did the other two movements, we know if it was mainly major mm -hmm. or minor. Um, but this is a Beethoven-influenced. Um, it starts very slowly with upward arpeggiated figures in the piano and long, drawn-out tones from the violin. It's very romantic in tone and feel, so this is getting away from the classical influence and more towards um, you know, the, the era that Mendelssohn lived in, the romantic. I mean, these were the people who created the romantic movement, Mendelssohn and his pals Chopin and Liszt and Berlioz too. Um, this has a kind of Barcarolle feel to it. Um, it's kind of a 6-8 um, uh, kind of rocking sort of um, triplet um, rhythm. Mm. But the melody doesn't match that form. The The accompaniment does. The, the melody doesn't sound like a Barcarolle melody. Um, a livelier theme does come after the slow opening. There's a contrasting quieter theme. By now, I've warmed to the sound of the album and I'm enjoying the performance. Uh, Ibrahimva is well recorded throughout, but I'm not sure that the piano is well captured. Um, you can hear everything he's playing, though, so there's really no issue with clarity. Uh, it's just that the particular sound to Bergian gets isn't being captured. It's kind of, it's a little blurry, I think, in the mix. You can hear everything, though, so the detail's all there. Um, 
it's a really gorgeous blending of sound at the end of the movement. Um, and it's odd that the disc ends this way. It feel ye, this movement ends and it feels like there should be more. And you're kind of sitting mm. in a chair there and uh, it's over and you're like, oh, <laughs> I guess that's it. Okay. So this is an enjoyable, upbeat, cheerful album. Good for spring. Uh, play it after your Ranitsky recording that we uh, reviewed a few weeks ago. The oboe concertos one. Yeah, I like the performances. Ragamova's violin always sounds nice. Uh, she's got a s- pleasing tone, which I can't say for all violinists. Uh, but I always enjoy listening to her playing. It never really causes the hairs on my neck to stand up like some yeah. violinists do. Uh, nice phrasing. Yeah, she's got this really pretty tone. It's yeah. just, it's very attractive. I like her playing a lot. It's yeah. uh, it's not huge, but it is warm, uh, and mm. so I like it. Uh well, and, it's intimate. It's like I'm being whispered. Yeah, it draws you in. Things. Oh. And mostly I think they they play really well together. There's a couple places where I thought mm, things might not be completely uh, in sync, but I think it gets better as the recording goes on, actually. Um, well, maybe in, we just got used to it, too. I don't know. Yeah. But. In the uh, F major sonata in the uh, third movement there, um, in the, the very first part of it, I felt like something was not quite settled in. But uh, after that, I felt more and more the synchronicity was getting better. The main thing that let me down on this is the sonics, like I said, with the uh, piano uh, tonal character and then the balance, which is kind of surprising for Hyperion. Uh, It actually shows up in some of the reviews. They they all give the performance high ratings, but the sonics... uh, sound is a little bit lower um, in uh, rating. So that's a, a little bit unfortunate, uh, not up to the usual standards. Uh, yeah, I think Hyperion it, gener- generally gets it right, you know. Yeah, it's mainly apparent in the first piece and then at the end uh, where the bulk of the middle, I found, you know, better balanced than other ones. So I don't know if it was a mic placement or uh, not enough time to uh, sort of sort things out in the recording process or whatever. But you can't fault the performances at all. They're really good with the material. And it's kind of interesting to see these uh, unpublished pieces and then get the fragment at the end and imagine, you know, what would have come next. I guess that's why they put it at the end. So you would, you know, just imagine uh, how the development and climax of that piece would have developed. But yeah, interesting uh, program there anyway. All right, now we're on to the <laughs> oh, the, the, piece. the album that I've been wanting to talk about all week. <laughs> okay. All right, this is a, a an, an album of um, Chopin piano works by Ivo Pogorelic. The uh, inf- he used to be the enfant terrible of classical music, and now he's the uh, the adult terrible. I guess I don't know, but <laughs> he's a he's a very um, his playing is very iconoclastic. He really tries to uh, sort of go against the grain when he uh, records. And sometimes he's really, really spectacular. Um, there are two recordings of his that I absolutely love. Um, one of them is his uh, recording of Scarlatti Sonatas. Mm. And the other one is his recording of Ravel's uh, Gaspar de la Nuit and uh, Prokofiev's Piano Concerto Number. I don't remember which one. It was probably five. I'm going to guess five. It was either five or six. I don't remember. Mm. But that that was some spectacular playing on that. Um, 
and he's always great. You can hear that this is a great pianist, but he, he'll often do odd things, especially in his Chopin playing. Now, Pogorelich doesn't record much, so this is a big event in the classical music world when he, uh, it's kind of, you know, it's sort of like when um, like Stanley Kubrick used to put out a movie. It's, it gets that right. kind of buzz, you know, because there they just weren't that many of them. Yeah, and it's on Sony. And yeah. it's available on streaming, which doesn't always go together. But more and more, Sony is uh, right. going to streaming platforms, so we yeah, can and hear And I think it this online. is a new deal for Pogorelch, because he was always on Deutsche Grammophon. This was mm -hmm. on Sony Classical, right. so maybe a new deal for him. Okay, let's give you a little bit about Pogorelch himself. He's Croatian, uh, born in the former Belgrade, Yugoslavia. Belgrade, Yugoslavia, when it was Yugoslavia, uh, to a Croatian father and Serbian mother. I guess they didn't distinguish so much hmm. then because the borders were open, I guess. I don't really know much about the uh, history of that time. Anyway, he graduated from the Moscow Conservatory. Boy, we just keep getting into these Russian things. Okay, so in the Soviet days, he was uh, he went to the Moscow Conservatory. And he's known for his unorthodox interpretations, which this entire album is. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So if you're a big Chopin fan, um, well, first of all, if you've never heard Chopin, if you don't know much about Chopin's music and you really don't know how it should be played, what it's supposed to sound like, steer clear of this disc for now. Come to it like <laughs> after you know Chopin's music because you're really not going to get it unless you've heard Chopin as he's ordinarily played. For mm. those people, I would recommend Bruce Liu, okay, L-I-U, his recent uh, Deutsche Grammophon recording of, uh, he, he was the Chopin competition winner this year, and he created some real magic uh, that's worth hearing, so give that a listen. But here we're going to get a real, uh, really an orthodox approach. Okay. <laughs> I was reading the program notes for this, and they say, at worst, <laughs> oh. the way Pogorelich makes music is surprising. At best, disturbing. Hmm. I would think that would be the other way around. I would hmm. think it'd be at best surprising and at worst disturbing. But that's not what the uh, writer said here. Anyway, there you go. Uh, the music critic Joachim Kaiser wrote of Pogorelich, in extreme cases, Pogorelich plays along with the shock that many of the most important compositions in music history once caused. Chopin in particular is often done an injustice by pianists' pleasingly over-romanticized interpretations. Hmm. All right, now what, what um, Kaiser says there is true. Um, most pianists make Chopin into this really melodic, pleasing um, figure, and especially we live in Japan and... Japanese um, piano students play Chopin's music all the time, and they make it very sunny and melodic and nice. And it's got that in it, but it's harmonically, it's also got a lot of darkness in it. Mm -hmm. And um, Pogorelich is going to purposely err on the other side of that. We're going to hear all the darkness and none of the light in these performances. <laughs> all right, let's get on with this and see if I can put this across. Now, you can hear this. It's um, on Deezer, and it's on... It'll be on Apple and uh, Spotify and all of your um, ordinary, um, uh, you know, streaming services. Um, let's see. The Nocturne in uh, C minor, Opus 48, number one, uh, written in 1841. All of the works on this album are from the 1840s when Chopin's health, he, he was never really healthy, but it was really deteriorating. And it's really 
after his uh, glory days of the 1830s, which was the golden age of uh, piano playing. It's really when the piano became the instrument it is today. I mean, it, it still had it still had to improve over the uh, rest of the 19th century, but um, the piano as a solo instrument and as the uh, say the instrument of the musical poet and all that stuff happened in the mm. 1830s and it was because of Chopin, Mendelssohn and Liszt and other pianists as well but those were the three main guys Chopin's compositions Liszt's playing and compositions and also Chopin's playing as well and Mendelssohn too uh, virtuoso child prodigy that he was alright now this Nocturne in C minor very slow opening very dramatic and lots of spaces left um this is really, it's a beautiful piano sound, but the piano he's using kind of sounds a little um, um, like it's ill or something. <laughs> I he, told he, you what I thought of this, right? What did you um, say? I forgot. I, I said it's as if he's playing on another planet that has yeah. a heavier atmosphere and more gravity than our own planet. <laughs> you know? It could be. It's, it, it's slower. So you, it's you somehow, get the gravity feeling. It's not feeling, just yeah. that. Yeah, it's... It, it's it's not like you get the feeling that he's playing the piece slow. It's that as he's fighting some external force that is putting more resistance against, you know, the keys or something like that. That's mm. the feeling I got. It's really something uh, very different than someone who would just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to play this slower than usual. That's not yeah. the effect at all. It's sort of like he's created this force of resistance yeah. to the performance that gives it a quality that you've never really heard before. Uh, and once he overcomes that force, the piano takes the full brunt of his, uh, of his force. Uh, so it's very interesting, which contrasts with the ending of it, which is rather soft. Uh, I mean, just talking about the, you know, this piece here. So This particular piece. Yeah. The first, so he's playing this, um, you know, the accompaniment. Usually these nocturnes of Chopin start with an accompaniment, uh, this arpeggiated bass. And then he plays his first melodic note, and it gets this, it has this real rattle to it. It's not this beautiful, pearly sound. It kind of sounds like something in the piano is damaged or something. Now, it made me think Mozart died of what they called consumption, uh, which we know is uh, tuberculosis. A lot of people died of this in the 19th century. And the piano sounds a bit consumptive or like it has TB <laughs> in this sound. Now, that's that's not that's not a like I'm, I'm, it's not a negative criticism. This is obviously what he wants, and he does get a beautiful sound though in his touch. Mm. He's got an, he's got a really astonishing palette of um, sounds he can create. I did read some uh, one review of this that noticed that rattle or metallic nature to the notes too. Yeah, and he he's just sort of surmised that it might be they've got it very closely mic'd because there are some places on this recording where he purposely plays things super softly and right, that's he right. wanted those parts to be captured and so you know the, the placement of the mic might be a little bit different than normal and that's why it's picking up these kind of uh, metallic uh, extra sounds <laughs> non-musical yeah. Uh, well, sounds for the piano. Yeah, extra musical, shall we say? Yeah, yeah touch is a big part of uh, Pogorelch's playing. Um, if you've been listening to him, um, he plays this as a haunting piece. It's usually played as something pretty. Uh, the nocturnes, oh, the the nauseating things people say about Chopin's nocturnes. Oh, Chopin, 
dipped his pen in moonlight and composed the nocturnes gag me okay they're really not they are dark pieces you know <laughs> they, they are dark there's a lot of darkness in them, but there's a lot of beauty in them too they have gorgeous melodies these gorgeous singing melodies to them as well but they're over an abyss and i think we need to recognize that in a lot of the cases um, this piece moves so slowly that it's actually ghostly. Um, there's an empty, emptiness to the spirit of the work in this approach. And my comparison, you had said heavier gravity, um, mm. outer space. You know, but I said it sounded like this work was cloned. And um, he's examining the body parts so that he can have them transplanted into the... <laughs> it's the deteriorating parts of the original work, I guess. The science fiction stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of science here. fiction stuff in this. Um, I, I'm hearing this as a kind of science fiction performance, you know. Mm. The middle section is equally slow with lots of space. Uh, it's got a beautiful tone, as we would expect from this mm. pianist, really. But there's a heaviness to the trudging style that negates the beauty of the tone. Uh, the piano is recorded close up, as Russ mentioned earlier. And we hear the heavy fortissimo chords leading back to the opening section. The piano strings have a certain rattle to them as though it's being played on an antique piano. Uh, gorgeous touch and beautiful pianissimo on the ending chords. Mm. Okay. Very soft. Yeah, really. Yeah, it's really, it really is astonishing. Um, this is the kind of thing that would have uh, just made all the all the ladies melt in the audience, except that the whole piece was so haunting <laughs> that it probably wouldn't have registered that way if they actually heard it in a concert hall. All right, I'm talking about the 19th century ladies, you know, in Chopin's time, in their corsets and stuff. Anyway, <laughs> second track, Nocturne is another Nocturne. This is the second one. Um, this is only a seven-track album. There are only four pieces on it. Um, the second one is a nocturne again another shortish piece E major opus 62 number 2 this is um, I th it's his last nocturne to be written apparently but not the last to be published because after he died okay. they kept um, publishing them because um, he had a lot of them in manuscript that he never published actually not a lot a few uh, again, played very slowly. This whole album is taken at a uh, slow pace, so you really have mm. to focus and be calm when listening to it. It's not going to lift you up. It's not designed to do that. Uh, this particular Nocturne is more lyrical than the uh, first one that we heard. Um, it starts like an early Chopin Nocturne, as though Chopin himself were looking back to his earlier Nocturnes, but then the music suddenly quietens quietens after the first cadence at around a minute 15 seconds and the harmony starts to darken um Pogorelic gets a lot out of this uh weighing his notes and tempo carefully to get maximum payoff for his vision these weighted notes are really a special part of his playing here mm. too uh, he goes for something tentative as the bass line starts to move uh, he plays it like an alternate melody as in a double fugue rather than as contrasting accompaniment uh, the opening comes back with some changes in the harmony. Uh, the volume drifts off into the very quiet towards the end, and we get a repeated note in the final minutes that's played to sound like a tolling of a bell, sort of, I guess, a funeral bell. Uh, the tempo emphasizes that bell sound, and the ending comes across as deeply touching. Okay, track three. This is um, a big single movement piece, the Fantasy in F minor, opus 49, and uh, this piece typifies the dark, broken quality 
that Pogorelich sees in Chopin's work from the 1840s. Mm. Um, from the notes, I get the opening march theme refers to Karol Kurpinski's protest song, Litvinka, the Lithuanian, which was popular with Polish troops during Chopin's lifetime. Uh, this piece is it's 16 minutes long, and it's usually over 10 minutes when it's played, you know, in a normal way, in the way that it's come down to us, let's say, uh, by posterity. This is also taken slowly with great attention to the weight of tone and detail. It starts very quietly and carefully. Uh, there's a funeral march quality to the material in the first three minutes. You have that dumb, dumb, da-dum kind of rhythm, just like in the funeral march uh, in his second piano sonata, in Chopin's second piano sonata. Uh, flourishes, arpeggiated flourishes, I guess, are heard at around 3 minutes and 45 seconds, and the material changes. We hear those rattling notes in the top end of the piano here. Uh, most of the piece has been at the lower end, up to the 3 minute and 45 second mark. Um, and I think, you know, the metallic quality, I don't think it's the recording only. I think it's the way Pogorelich is striking the key, uh, bringing that quality out of the piano. Because we don't always hear it. Um and he's playing this note in other works. He's got to be. And especially in fast figuration, we don't get that sound. At 4 minutes and 40 seconds and after, we hear a skating quality familiar to Chopin's music, which Progorelich executes brilliantly. I think of the, uh, I think it's the second scherzo or the third. I can't remember which one, but it has a lot of this sort of quality to it. The figuration is all played with immaculate technique, but with an occasional ugly tone that sticks out. And again, that is intentional. Uh, the build starting around five minutes and 30 seconds is taken deliberately and doesn't build excitement, which it normally does. It just leads to the next section. And that quality is intended. As I said, this is a virtuosic piece, but it's being played so that the virtuosity isn't what's drawing the ear. He wants the harmony. Pogorelich wants the harmony to draw the ear, the darkness of this piece. After six minutes, there's a plodding quality to the quarter note chords, but the attention is so precise that tension isn't released. So it's, you think about if you're kind of like balancing yourself on a bike, and you know, now people can balance themselves on stationary bikes, but uh, you know, the bike in the old days, if you're an ordinary person who rides a bike like me, um, mm. The bike has to be moving at a certain speed unless it will tip over, you know? So he's he keeps it at this um, speed that it, it doesn't tip over. Or he's just one of these amazing people who I call it <laughs> doesn't the, release the tension. I, I have a very uh, non-musical word for how it gets in here. I call it a gooey. Gooey? Okay. It, it's sort <laughs> of the, the space between the movement of notes becomes like viscous. Yeah, okay. Like, um, you know, the... This is interesting. I'll give a food analogy. Uh, the Japanese have a texture description of food that's called neba neba. Uh -huh. It's gooiness, right? And so one of the things they they have in Japan that a lot of people mm. like is okra. And mm. uh, the other one is uh, yamaimo, which is mountain potato. And they're very kind of starchy foods that when you lift them up, they, <laughs> they have a goo that sort of sticks no. back to the, you know, the plate. Uh, and so it's hard to get them separated against. And I, in addition to the, in, in the beginning of this piece, I, I felt that same kind of, uh, multiple gravities weight. And, uh, after he comes down softly in the middle, it does pick up a lot of motion again. And then to me, it gets caught in this sort of goo that, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's very interesting. 
how he injects this into the phrasing but you know it's it's nothing in the the instrument itself it's all in how he adjusts his touch to getting through the rhythms of the material and it, it must be some kind of concept you know in his phrasing that he's able to get this kind of <laughs> I, I feel like it, it's not like an playing underwater but in something a thicker atmosphere kind of thing and uh, I've, I've never heard anything quite like this with this material so uh, and then it really is unique it yeah. changes again because again when he gets to the end uh, it gets extremely soft and mm -hmm. uh, he has some very interesting pauses uh, once he gets out of that kind of uh, thick atmospheric uh, thing so it's, it's really interesting how he creates these different sort of environments of uh, touch and movement to go through on this piece. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the slow quality, by the way, takes away the uh, breathless quality of the playing in around mm. seven minutes and afterwards. The energy just dissipates yeah. after that. Uh, parts that sparkle in other pianists playing don't sparkle here. It's no. really amazing, yeah? At eight minutes and 45 seconds, we get very slowly played chords connecting a melody. Uh, listening to this 16-minute piece uh, played like this requires some serious attention on the part of the listener. So mm -hmm. I want you out there to think about yeah. that before you turn this yeah, on. Th it's not, <laughs> as you said, there's not a lot of pieces on this album, but you'll be completely exhausted at the end. It is exhausted. I was exhausted <laughs> yeah. after yeah. I heard it. I did I did like it. I mean, I'll give my yeah, review yeah. at the end, oh, yeah. but it's not. I'll explain what I thought at the end, actually. I uh, Yeah, I would suggest you don't doze, doze off while listening uh, because this piece might inspire dark dreams the way it's played here, <laughs> you know? So keep yourself awake because somebody might, you know, <laughs> some terrible thing might happen to you in your dreams or something. Uh, there's a burst of speed at 11 minutes and 30 seconds, but that's compared to what we just heard. It's still slow and eschews the vi virtuosity we usually get here. As we head to the final climax... Tension is built up very slowly in the 13th minute. A lot of the tension is eschewed to. I use this word a lot in this particular recording. Eschew. Eschew. Yeah. Eschew, mm. I guess it's uh, yeah. pronounced. Um, I, I kind of like it. I eschew the um, whatever. <laughs> Let me get a definition so I can be exact. Yeah, deliberately avoid using something. Yeah, you, you eschew you get that, it. That kind of idea that he has certain kind of parameters that he's decided things he's not going to do that are you know yeah, normally associated with the performance too. yeah you can kind of understand that yeah as we head to the final climax tension is built up very slowly in the 13th minute and a lot of that tension is eschewed too that's your new word for today everybody <laughs> <laughs> it was my new word this week <laughs> I've never said it before. I've read it a million times. So I had to look up how to pronounce it. Eschew. Eschew. Let's make sure. Yeah, eschew. Eschew. <laughs> but there's enough tension built up that there's a release at the end. Uh, the ending is also played slowly and deliberately, but with beautiful tone on the figuration leading up to the final chords. Uh, Pogorelich sacrifices tension for darkness of tone, really. Okay, tracks four through seven. You want to say anything else about that before I go on? No, yeah, no. Okay. That's All right. good about it. All right, so tracks four through seven are Piano Sonata number three in B minor, opus 58. This is uh, one of my favorite piano pieces in the world. I really love this one. And this uh, <laughs> was a real... <laughs> I, I was very interested in this performance of it because of... 
the detail that came out because of the way he plays it. It, it was pretty amazing, but it's not kind of needless to say, it's not going to be my go-to performance because it's just mm. so weird. All right. And I wrote, I actually wrote the word in my notes, man, this is slow. <laughs> this whole album is really slowly played music. This music is usually not played this slowly. Mm. Okay. Uh, some variety would have been welcome on the album, I have to say, just to kind of, you know, give us a little bit of um, a rest from this. It really does feel like gravity is turned up here. Like we're on, like you said, another planet, like we're on Mars mm. and we're being pulled to the surface. <laughs> By, by the uh, force of uh, the stronger gravity there. Um, in this case, um, in this performance, each note is carefully weighted and heard. It, and there are a lot of um, pedaling and sort of um, hemiola type um, uh, patterns. Hemiola is like different time times against each other. Like you have three in one hand and two in the other. Um or, or you're playing like two, like two eighth notes in a three in a triplet kind of um, melody, rhythm, or things like that. That's a hemiola. So there's a lot of that sort of thing um, in this piece, and it makes um, it gives the pianist uh, the pianist has to make a lot of um, decisions as to how he's gonna play them. I would have loved to have heard how Chopin himself played it. Um, Pogorelich def- though, though definitely has a vision for this, and uh, we do hear each note very well. Uh, this this performance winds up being pretty interesting, intellectually speaking. Uh, there's a lot of intricate detail. Um, Pogorelich makes sure we hear all of it. That is not the case with normal performances of this piece. I rather enjoyed the detail. A lot of it usually gets lost in the virtuosic playing of the pianist. I liked the brief pause before the bass note that anchors the second lyrical theme. Um, there's three in the bass and then the, 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 uh, melody on the right hand is playing kind of against that uh it's slow here but his beauty can't be taken away it's just not as melting as we often hear it i appreciated hearing the accompanying left hand so clearly during that theme and the tension dissolving beautiful figuration from three minutes to 30 seconds on is beautifully played with the lightest gossamer of tone the repeat Controversial as it is, I wonder if people complained about how soft some of this was, because it was pretty <laughs> quiet at parts. The repeat isn't taken here. Like we, I had mentioned before that the in the Mendelssohn, the repeat was taken. Here he skips the repeat. It's pretty controversial because the uh, beginning um, of this piece the uh, is very long as it is. So to hear it all again <laughs> would take mm-hmm. a really long time and makes the movement very long. So he skips the uh, repeat of the... Uh, the material and goes into the uh, development section. Uh, we're into the development section at around the five minute mark. There's something icy and marmorial. There's a good word for you too. Marmorial mm. <laughs> about the uh, rock like, like it's kind of like going to be there forever about the recollection of the opening chord patterns in the recapitulation. Uh, they're slower here. The The development section is very, very short in this, um, in this, um, piece it's a really odd movement really um the themes are all slower when they repeat and despite this tension and the through line of the movement is kept up amazingly enough it's it's, it's quite a stunt at seven minutes and 30 seconds there are a lot of interesting pauses where there generally aren't any in the lead up to the second theme i actually liked the approach to the lyrical second theme as i mentioned here we're hearing it in the uh the key of the piece b minor i'm guessing um, in this case, I think he's probably going for the tonic there. I do not have perfect pitch, as you may have noticed. 
The climax isn't dramatic, and the movement simply ends with the lightest of releases of tension. All right, second movement. This is the scherzo, played molto vivace. This is all figuration, and then it's got a lyrical middle section. So the openings and closing sections, the A sections, the the form of this piece is, this movement is A-B-A. So A is one type of music, and then the B section, it's like a sandwich. A would be the bread, B would be the whatever's in the middle of the sandwich. Okay, so the A sections of this movement have virtuosic figuration, and what's interesting here are Pogorelich's accenting of the higher end of the wave of figuration. It's almost like this swelling wave, and he makes... Mm a uh, crescendo at the top end and like then pulls it back as he goes like it's something stretching out and then being slowly released the middle section is slow and a bit slower than normal but again gorgeous detail you get the feeling of momentum maintained despite the slow tempo Uh, the bass note is bounced off of to launch into the repeat of the opening figurative material all right, the third movement. This is my favorite movement of one of my favorite works. So I was all ears when this came on. Uh, there, this is the Largo. It's very slow. There are long pauses after the second of the two quick chords that open this movement. The normally slow melody is taken even more slowly than usual. My favorite mm-hmm. section starts at three minutes and twenty-four sections. This is the seconds is the middle. It's played very lightly here, with all of its richness of harmony easily audible. It's a bit slow, but it usually sounds something like this. It's all very quiet once the connecting arpeggio figures stop. I absolutely love the way the turn to the bold major at the six-minute mark comes across as brief sunshine that then quickly disappears a great effect put is it's a great effect that is well put across here um yeah that that is a pretty amazing thing he 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 briefly goes chopin briefly goes into the major and it's it's a magical moment in the um in the movement but pogorosh really makes sure this registers extremely well like you hear it and it just sounds like something opening up and then suddenly it just bang it's gone right away (laughs) really nice uh, six minute mark. Listen to that. The opening section of this ternary form movement returns after, at the nine minute mark after a prolonged transition from the lyrical middle section. The quietness of this entire album is really raising my senses to spider sensitivity by this point. <laughs> Did you notice that yourself? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, well, when we get to the end, I'll give you yeah. a more impression. <laughs> okay. yeah. One more movement left. Here we go. Fourth movement finale, Presto Non Tanto. The opening chords of this movement usually come crashing out, but Pogorelich plays them as a crescendo. He starts quietly and builds them, and not a very loud crescendo either. Uh, The 6-8 rhythm of the main theme is played deliberately so that it rather lopes instead of sails. You know, because it usually sounds like dun da dun da dun. There's that dotted rhythm, dun 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 dun. dun. But he kind of has it more like loping, like it's like some kind of like dog or something <laughs> instead of a. <laughs> I don't know what it, what the other one animal would be. Maybe a ship or something. It's on the ground rather than the water. That's the way I describe the rhythm mm. of this. Usually, it's on the water. Here, it's on the ground. Some really astonishing technique in the very fast pearly scales after a minute and twenty seconds. With the rhythmic figures clearly discernible in the left hand, I love the figuration from 3 minutes and 20 seconds or so onwards. It's so clear, beautifully executed. Again, the rhythmic figures in the left hand are clearly heard as well. 
We don't really get the sense of tension building from the pianist's approach, though build it does. I actually wound up with a smile by the end of this movement. Uh, something had come across. I couldn't tell you what it was, but I definitely something on a deep level registered for me yeah. to react like that. Um, I guess it was all the amazing virtuosity and clarity of what's in the score. Uh, the performance works, though it's hardly orthodox. Okay. Summer in sum. Here we go. I've been looking at some of the reviews of this album, and the, the thing is, with critics, there are some people. Pogorelich really does um, invite like people who love his playing and people who hate his playing. And there's no one in the middle, and I always kind of like to be in the middle, unless I really like or don't like something, of course. Um, but I, I can't. Okay, this isn't an album you're going to cherish if you, buy, unless you're like a big fan of Pogorelich himself, in the sense of loving it for its beauty. It's because it's so dark and kind of like sort of not foreboding but it's kind of like pushing you away a little bit um unusual for chopin's music i mean you may love it for its probing quality if you're mm. if you're like the intellectual side of music uh this might be for you um this album goes for something different it's not an approach that generates excitement uh, in fact, it deliberately avoids excitement as far as I'm concerned. It's a soul-searching record that I might return to in my darkest or most lucid moments, whether those two things be opposites or the same. Okay, so when you're in that, when the world is ending and you kind of like uh, want to contemplate something, this might be a good album to put on for that. Uh, it's playing that informs the soul, even if the soul might reject what it says. Given the time of life, it's being heard. Okay, so if you're younger, I think if you're older, you might like this better than if you're younger. Hmm. It's a deep album. Uh, these are, these are I want to say, these are successful interpretations of these works, um, but they lose a lot in building and release of tension. Um, you might not find them appealing. Um, I wouldn't call them appealing, but they're not intended to be that in these performances. To listen to when you're sad and want to know the meaning of life, I would say, <laughs> for this album. Uh, it's provocative, and it's genius piano playing that a lot of people aren't going to like. Yeah. Well, I thought they're definitely interesting interpretations, sometimes quite startlingly beautiful. Uh, I found a lot of the passages, just the way that you know he's interpreting different things that will make you notice certain things that may get glossed over that he decides are going to be highlighted in there. Uh, and I notice them kind of in a fresh way because uh, I've heard all these pieces before, uh, some of them more than others, but never quite like this. And then in contrast, there's some sections that are laborious. <laughs> They're kind of getting <laughs> worn out. So it's a bit exhausting making it to the end of this recording. But yeah. I, my overall feeling is, you know, why not, if you're going to record these pieces again, uh, if you don't have something new or interesting to add to them, I mean, there's any number of uh, fabulous recordings of these by great pianists to listen to. So obviously, he has the conviction that uh, he's finding something else in these pieces that he wants to highlight or that, have, you know, gets glossed over in the pursuit of, you know, technical virtuosity or something else. And so I think that's a worthwhile pursuit. And, uh, you know, in, in classical music, I, I guess all, you know, all genres of music where people are working with, you know, sort of a, a repertoire, you're going to be prone to the same type of uh conventions right and mm. you're going to have people who stick to the script 
and you know turn out a technically impressive performance but there's you know nothing artistically new here uh and you know those will make up the bulk of the recordings and once in a while you'll get something someone who goes out on a limb and tries something a little bit different and not everyone's going to like it and that's fine uh these i found these interesting there's some you know, quite impressive and astonishing things in here as well. Uh, and it'll make you reconsider your conception of, uh, you know, what Chopin's music is like. So, yeah, definitely worth a listen. And you, and you might actually, you know, f I, I doubt that, like you say, this will be your definitive uh, Chopin, but uh, it'll make you uh, think about uh, these compositions in a different way. And uh, I where I sometimes wondered, like, you know, why is he, why is he playing this part like this? Uh, it, it, was, it was still kind of interesting that he could sort of uh, get a new concept in a section and, and create these, like I say, illusions of gravity or... Yeah, um, yeah he's remarkable. He's um... The varying of touch and the attention to dynamics. And he's doing this all with a purpose uh you know, in what he wants to convey through these pieces. So, yeah, um, actually, the, all the reviews I looked at uh, are mostly <laughs> quite people, positive. Yeah, but some people really just hate him and they're just going to write a terrible review, you know? You know, that's going back like 40 <laughs> years ago when he I know, was they're still holding this, uh, you know, oh, barred from the Chopin competition or whatever. Um, and, well, yeah, uh, that's an interesting story. He uh, he was eliminated from the uh, I think I guess it was the Chopin competition. I don't remember which one it was, but he was um, eliminated yeah. in a uh, Chopin in a competition before the final round. And Martha Argerich was on the uh, board, one of the great pianists of the 20th century, and she's she's still with us too. Um, it was on the board of that. Uh, yeah, she was one of the judges, and she walked out of the competition <laughs> as a, yeah. as a result because she recognized uh, Pogorelich's genius. Yeah, I guess so. What I yeah, the final word is you know I would rather listen to this than another cloned performance of these. That, well, uh, I wouldn't want to hear a clone performance, but like pianists I love, like Stephen Hoff, and like I mentioned the uh, recent Bruce Liu recording. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, Bruce Liu has just um. Um, signed a deal with Deutsche Grammophon, so he's probably going to be recording more Chopin pretty soon. Mm. Uh, so we'll be hearing some from him. But his his playing really sparkles. He had he plays them in a traditional way, but he manages to get some kind of sparkle and energy out of them that makes the pieces seem fresh again, and that's a mm. real miracle too. Yeah, but we'll talk about too. him when we get the new recording. I, I didn't want to do the the one that. Um, Deutsche Grammophon released from the Chopin competition, even though it was great. But I want to see what he's going to do okay. for his first program in a studio. You know. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, take a listen. Uh, whether you like it or not, you'll you'll find it interesting. Uh, I I liked it a lot. So yeah, not for Chopin newbies, please. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you'll just get the wrong idea. All right. Anyway. Our third and final classical recording. Where are the jewels? Oh, the hidden gems. Here <laughs> oh, they, they are. Hid the, they hid them. <laughs> yes, in, in the <laughs> Netherlands. Uh, but we found them. But we found them, I guess. Um, haven't, haven't brought them to the jewelers yet, and now I'm going to have to examine <laughs> them. Authenticate them, yes. And we've got to authenticate them right here on the Adult Music Podcast. Okay, this album is called Dutch Hidden Gems. Um, and... Uh, these are works by um, Dutch composers from the 20th century. 
some of them still living, some of them pretty young, in fact, um, that um, I personally have never heard of any of them. So <laughs> I always love finding recordings like this because it's just all new music. I feel like, you know, by the time I die, I want to have heard like every piece of music ever written <laughs> from the beginning of time. Well, you uh, live forever. I know, wow. I know, right? I don't know. I hope we get to keep listening somehow afterwards. Anyway. Um, okay, called Dutch and Gems. This is um, a project by the violist Dana Zemtsov or Dana. I know it's, I'm going to guess Dana uh, Zemtsov on the viola, not the violin. So we're going to get a darker tone here, which is rather welcoming because mm. uh, we don't hear enough of the viola as a solo instrument. That's for sure. And uh, accompanying her, we have in some works is Anna Fedorova, piano man. <laughs> I bet she's Russian too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. I'm wearing this. Um, I'm, I, I wore this uh, T-shirt out yesterday. It's a uh, it's blue and yellow, the Ukrainian colors. But I didn't realize that it's a it's a shirt that I got as a present for being on a. Japanese TV show once they interviewed me and they gave me the shirt as a present and the, the show is no longer on um, Japanese TV it's um, Guruto Kansai Ohiro Mae it's I called I didn't know you were on TV just that one this is in the 2000s I, mean, I might not even have known you at the time <laughs> but it was <laughs> no, just like an ep- it was just an it was just like an interview thing um, th- this this um, f- this friend of mine had a friend Japanese woman who had just started as a producer on this show and she needed um, – she wanted to go out and interview foreigners about Japan. And she went to Osaka Castle, and there were no foreigners there. So she called me and asked me if I could help her. So I just walked by pretending oh, <laughs> okay. that I was there. It was staged. Just minding my business. But no, it, it was staged by me, but she I don't think she knew it. Okay. But they did give me this T-shirt, but it happens to be blue and yellow. And everybody says, oh, you support the Ukraine. I was like, well, that's not why um, – you know, wearing this shirt, I just put it on. It was just happened to be the the Ukrainian flag colors. I'm really getting in all kinds of trouble these days. I don't know between well, Ukraine, we, and Russia, we, and all this stuff. We uh, we don't uh, associate any of our musical picks with anything political or any yeah, leaders. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, because we don't support any of those leaders of any country. <laughs> we're just interested we, we, in the we music. We don't support the leaders of any country. Basically, I mean, we're just we're, interested I, I, in the music. Yeah, well, not only that, we're in our fifties. We're too jaded to actually think that a political leader can be a hero I don't I trust think, any you know? of them you know I don't trust any of them I, I won't vote any for of any of them <laughs> yeah yeah there you go anyway let's get back to the hidden gems because these are the people we care about the musicians right yeah whether they're Support Russian whether they're Ukraine fantastic we love them all okay Dutch Hidden Gems, um, Anna Fedorova on the piano and the Fion Orchestra conducted by Shizuo Kuahara who I believe is Japanese. This sounds pretty Japanese to me. Yeah, it's a Japanese name. Anyway. And this is on the Channel Classics label. Okay. Is that the Channel or Chanel? It's Channel. It's oh, a British label. No, no, it's actually a Dutch label. No, Channel is a Dutch label. Sorry. You got to pronounce it differently. You see it. Channel. Is this, there might be a Dutch way to pronounce Chanel. it. Chanel. Yeah. I thought it was more it's there fashionable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, but it's, it's Two ends. They, they they use the word classics too, so it's English Channel oh, Classics. It's classic. Channel okay. Classics. Channel. <laughs> well, you gotta say it with your British accent, not with your Staten Island accent. No, it's it's a Dutch label. Oh. Uh, I don't know how to do not, that. It's not British. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't know. I I guess they would just speak English for that part. Yeah, I guess. Anyway. 
Okay, so some some uh, Dutch music here. Um, the first now the for me on this album the the first work was the most interesting. I thought um, this mm. is by Hank Badings. Now, please, I don't speak Dutch. I'm not going to know how to say any of these Badings Badings. I don't know Hank Badings. Maybe he lived from 1907 to 1987, and this is his viola concerto from 1965, the year I was born, in fact. So there, I just told everybody my age. There you go. Mm. As uh, people aren't going to send me those uh, nude pictures of them anymore. Anyway, I hope not because I don't want to see them. <laughs> <laughs> not if they're from the same well, no, the same no. prehistoric well, maybe, era as maybe you. Maybe the people yeah. who send them to me are going to change now. I don't know. That's the thing. It's going to go go up in eight, eight, eight years or something. It'll be black and white. <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like those, though. <laughs> the black and white ones. Okay. They're arty. They're Retro. arty. Yeah, arty. Yeah. They're as old as the music I love. Okay. No, just kidding. Okay. Anyway, Bodings. I'm going to say, I'm going to go for Bodings. I'm just going to guess. I doubt it's Badings. Okay. <laughs> he was a prolific composer writing over 700 works. How do people do this? <laughs> you know? I don't know. Okay, including 15 symphonies and 48 concertos. Wow. 48. Wow. <laughs> Wait, he, he was 80 years old when he died. Okay. Or 79. He, he died like in his 80th year. Um, the viola concerto uses a 31-tone temp- note temperament, which we first hear in the subsidiary theme of the first movement. Okay, the way this works is that the viola, the solo instrument, plays it in its 12-note temperament. Now, this doesn't mean it's 12-tone music, no. It means that there are 12 notes available to the violinist, so they're probably, maybe it's not a, he's not He's not using keys here, but he's not following any kind of uh, pattern with the 12 notes. What he means is just the ordinary 12 notes of the, uh, that are available to Western music. And then after that, he's got a choice of 31 notes, which means all these like uh, quarter tones and this sort of thing. The sort of thing you hear in like Indian music or in um, Bartok used it and uh, Harry Parch famously uh, wrote a lot of um, like sort of note pieces with quarter tones and all these odd tunings for Western music. Um, anyway, this movement is quasi lento. It starts with the 12 note temperament in the main theme. And then when we hear the orchestra, so you want to listen for this um introduction you hear the 31 note temperament it's it, you'll notice it because it sounds really kind of dissonant and odd mm. um and i really enjoyed that sound i was like oh yeah when i heard it you know okay we hear triplets and then we hear the 12 note theme return um let me see here i said that um the viola has a luscious dark tone in its opening theme. Uh, the work doesn't sound tonal, but it doesn't sound like a dodecaphonic music either. Um, judging by the string chord we hear after the viola's opening, okay, the string chord is like the 31 note temperament. The viola's theme is melodic despite its, like, you know, using, you know, whatever the, the notes are. It's a pretty melodic tone the rest of the ensemble is providing the dark profile of the piece in its 31 note system i i called this uh, movement haunting there's a lot of space uh Mm. the ensemble is well recorded with uh, pianissimi registering clearly this is again you gotta listen to this in a quiet room this was interesting the beginning to me it sounds like a beehive of buzzing or something Mm. something weird going on there uh and then like you say you'll hear those vacillating pitches 
in the string accompaniment that give that eerie quality. But right. there's also a section where the viola goes through, uh, you know, after you've gotten used to these sort of uh, interpitches that we don't normally hear. Then right. The viola, there's a theme that's uh, almost like pentatonic mm. in very contrast you know, to to these uh, <laughs> uh, subtones, <laughs> yeah, and and that's done over uh, a kind of pizzicato backing of the orchestra, and so it it gets a really almost like folk nature to it in contrast, right. and then uh, the whole piece has a very interesting final resolution to it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, kind of une- a lot of unexpected things pitch wise uh, in this one. Yeah, the it, um, let me just. I thought the first movement was pretty intriguing with some ear-scrambling yet painless harmonies. Now, when you hear (laughs) microtones, it's kind of like somebody put one of those egg scrambler Mm. things in my ear or something and just went... (laughs) And that's what you're hearing. Well, it's all where they lead to, right? I mean, it's like any kind of um, music. You can build tension with an unexpected harmony or even, you know, in between pitches that you're used to, but where does it go to after that is how you're going to, you know, uh, feel after it. So it all depends on the voice leading and resolution, I think. Yeah. Um, what do I want to say? The thing about microtones, because we, we hear them as chords here, like as parts of a chord, and mm. it's really weird to hear them like that. Mm. Um, if you hear like, because Indian scales use a lot of these, what, they're not quarter tones to the Indian system, but if we kind of compare it to the Western system, it is. But um, when you hear them there, they're kind of part of that musical scale. So you're not ever hearing it as part of like a a Western chord. So when mm. they play them like this, it's really strange. Yeah, you know. Um, okay, let's go on. There's an adagio movement. It's an ABA form. Um, let me see. Uh, Bodings does the haunting quality well. There's a ghostly theme in the strings to start the movement. And the viola comes in with a heartfelt melody. The low strings come in briefly, and they're done by 3 minutes 30 seconds of this 6 minute 26 second movement. The rest is just the higher strings. Kind of interesting sounds. And Allegro Molto, the last movement, is a rondo in a polymetric 2, 4, and 3, 8 time, which are two kind of odd time signatures to combine. The theme is in 3, 8, and the 2, 4 is the accompaniment in 2, 4. And uh, the violinist uh, bounces the bow off the strings to begin the rhythm for the final movement. The 3-8 theme plays across the 2-4 of the orchestra. And the viola's rondo theme is catchy and easy to recognize when it returns. Um, one wonders, though, if this could, this movement could have been played at a quicker tempo. Now, we've never heard it before. But I feel like the heaviness of the viola's sound sounds like... Maybe it's just the heaviness of the viola's sound, mm-hmm. but it sounds like it's a little slow. And maybe the orchestration prevent that. Uh, it sounds like there's some rhythmic excitement in there that we're not quite getting. I said about this piece that it's listenable. It doesn't move much. And any movement is... And the movements are slow, probably due to its harmonic weight. Um, I kind of felt like uh, listening to this piece. It was interesting, but it was kind of like watching a, a brontosaurus lumber by yeah. in slow motion, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's just heavy, you know, just this big tread. Uh, it's slow and heavy and something you've never heard before, too. So you've never seen a brontosaurus. Uh, the performance and recording emphasizes the sonic detail over the structure, though the structure is clearly recognizable, which is no bad thing. I kind of was interested in hearing this piece. I rather I rather liked it. Um, I don't know. I think, I think 
I can't fault the performance for being slow or heavy because I think that's just the way mm. that's the way it, the performance has to be given the way it's composed. So I think this is a pretty uh, realistic um, interpretation of this work or the way that it would have sounded in the composer's ear. Yeah, the final movement is more animated than the first two, uh, but you're still left with somewhat of a dark... Uh, the overall impression I get is a, a little bit of darkness uh, from the the tone. And as you say, it's not working with conventional harmonies, but uh, it creates a somewhat uh, darker atmosphere tonally. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's sort of the lasting impression I got from it, despite the, the motion in the third movement. All right. Now, here's where my issue with the program comes in, because the... Uh the opening work is it's the biggest work on the disc and it probably should have been saved for last because we're hearing these like 31 note kind of temperament chords in this 31 note temperament and it's really beguiling for the ear um and then <laughs> once this piece ends the rest of the program is just ordinary <laughs> so you kind of feel like you've heard all the really unique original stuff right away and then you're just going to hear these other things that aren't going to register as strongly the fourth um, track is a work by Arne Verkman, Pavan for viola and string orchestra. Now, right away, when you see a 20th century work, or maybe even a 21st century work, I didn't get the year for this one, um, that's called Pavan. A Pavan is really a, a Baroque era dance. It's very old. So th this is a piece that's going to sort of um, reflect the past. Okay, uh, this is the famous Pavan by uh, Ravel for the solo piano. So you, you always sort of have that in your ear too when you're kind of thinking when you see this word. Okay, Verkman was born in The Hague but grew up in Geneva and France. Uh, the stately dance is noticeable via its motoric movement, say the notes. Um, the viola plays a sad, darkly toned theme in its lower to mid-range over a cloudy string harmony in the ensemble. Uh, the accompaniment moves back and forth like a gas contained in a beaker. I kind of like trying to expand, <laughs> but finding no space to do that. Um, you know, I feel like it's moving, looking for that opening so that it could burst out. I rather enjoy the accompaniment's gentle slashing after uh, two minutes and 30 seconds. Highly appealing. After which it settles into the contained gas sound again. Um, the piece is slow and lugubrious, really too heavy for a pavan in my opinion. Um, which isn't really light to begin with. It's slow, but um, I thought it was. I thought this was kind of had a heaviness to it. Mm. Again, the viola is a heavy sounding instrument, though, because we associate it with the violin, which is really light and sprightly. You know, the viola doesn't really do that. Okay, next we have uh, Jan Coetzier, uh, concertino for viola and orchestra, composed in 1940. Uh, Coetzier was uh, lived 1911 to 2006. Um, by the way, the previous composer was born in 1960 and is still among us today. Okay, Coetzee died in 2006, though. Coetzee spent most of his life in Germany, where he moved with his parents in 1913, and the concertino shows influences of Hindemith, Richard Strauss, and Mahler. Coetzee, um, judging by this piece, seems to like to keep his contrasting sections short. Once you get used to a theme, he pulls it away from you. Um... I kind of like um, Anton Webern, except these are longer movements than that. Okay, the first movement, Allegro Energico. It's got a skipping melody at the beginning in both the viola and orchestra. 
uh, quickly changes to something more forlorn. The viola's dark tone draws out a lot of darker emotion, and the skipping motion um, is developed. There are a lot of quick changes. Sorry, quick changes in this movement, short sections that always go back to the skipping rhythm, which also doesn't stick around for long. Uh, the brief uh, movement is 3 minutes and 41 seconds. Uh, arrives at a slightly comic ending, with lower winds going down their scales to assist in arriving at the final cadence. Second movement, Andante Cantabile, slow and stretched out, fairly somber. A change from the more upbeat, though heavy, due to the viola, first movement. The viola comes in and plays a sort of soliloquy of a theme. Uh, this movement is short, too, at 4 minutes and 32 seconds, and there is some pretty nice orchestration. There is some nice pretty or orchestration in this piece in general. Uh, the woodwinds are used a lot. We get a big string statement, which the viola plays off of. The bass starts trudging in a downward, then upward circular motion as the viola solos. And this movement has an inconclusive end ending that kind of sounds like a dot, dot, dot at the end of a sentence. Like it's the music is continuing in some imaginary space, or it's just stopped to think about something. And that's it. And we go to the third movement, lento quasi recitativo, almost like a, like a speaking part in an opera, recitative or recitative. Lots of double stops in the opening theme. Always exciting if you're a string fan. Um, double stops is playing two strings at the same time. Okay. This is the longest movement at 4 minutes and 45 seconds, so not very long. Uh, this eventually develops into something dancey. Dance-like, I guess. Uh, Quetzia never seems to commit completely to a set rhythm or melody, as I mentioned before. And the uh, that's the case here, too. The rug is constantly being pulled out. And we're constantly exposed to new musical profiles. It's almost like we're running through a ha different rooms in a house, and they're all decorated <laughs> differently, you know? Hmm. <laughs> it reminds me of that scene in uh, the Banda Pach, the uh, Godard film, Band of Outsiders, where um, the, the main characters try to set the record for going through the Louvre uh, faster than anybody else. They try to set the world <laughs> record for going through the Louvre. And they, you, there's a scene of them running through the Louvre. <laughs> <laughs> this piece kind of reminds me a little of that um, um, it goes through triplet figuration then dotted rhythm melody then to something in quarter notes in 4-4 four, four time it sounds like the 4-4 four, four time is maintained throughout but 8th note triplets are used and the piece ends with a gentle flourish okay then we get back to Hank Boddings the guy he of the uh, 31 tone um, chord <laughs> on the first <laughs> Piece. This is a sonata for viola and piano. These pieces seem to get smaller as they go on. That seems to be the way they've um, um, programmed this. Probably from around 1951, this work, so earlier than the opening one. This is a cyclic work, so think uh, Cesar Franck's uh, famous uh, violin sonata, where you keep hearing the same theme in all four movements. It keeps coming back to that. A single germ cell unites the three movements in a cyclic whole. I actually didn't catch what that was when I heard this, but I trust them. The Allegro is march-like and dissonant, and it starts with a powerful dark sound in the viola. The piano plays heavy chords at the lower end. The material transforms with a sparkling piano figuration in its upper end. In this section, the piano draws most of the attention. A slower, quieter section comes, and the viola plays romantic-sounding melodic material as the piano chimes out thirds in its upper register. 
After this, the viola plays a pizzicato pattern that makes it sound like some kind of mandolin or lute. It was very surprising for me. Uh, then the piano ushers in a new section, and the viola plays harmonics over that. Another Bodings has a lot of interesting ideas about sound, mm. and you hear quite a few of them in this piece as well. It gets back to a ghostly melody in the higher end, sometimes slipping into harmonics. The opening forlorn questioning romantic material comes back in the viola in the recapitulation as the piano gently accompanies. Uh, the piece heads to a quiet section that goes to the end of the movement, which ends with two soft tonic chords in the piano. It's a feminine cadence. Anyway. Largo, second movement. Slow and sad, with almost Baroque melodic embellishments, according to the notes. Um, a distant piano chiming low frequency chords starts us out the viola builds to something more energetic always sticking the eighth notes and dropping sticking to eighth notes and dropping down to quarter notes to move down in frequency the piano accompanies mostly in chords at one point the piano starts rippling harp-like arpeggio figuration and the viola briefly stops playing after this interlude the piano comes back to its chiming chords though now in its middle register and the viola plays more brightly in its upper range it's a freeing section of the movement as though a higher level of being has been attained. <laughs> uh, this happens at around 4 minutes and 30 seconds onward, and I rather liked this. It actually surprised me. So check that out. Hmm. And the final Vivace movement uh, is, uh, it says in the notes, exuberant finale in triple time. <laughs> and I said, they call this exuberant, but it seems very measured to me at the beginning mm. and rather heavy in the rhythm. This is really true of all the works on this on this album. Mm. And I understand the viola, it needs time to for its darker tone to resonate, but I felt like the rhythm didn't have any bounce to it in this on this album in general. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I, can't I wrote what? for the last movement, angsty staccato becomes waltzy. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I described it. <laughs> okay. Oh boy, it's it's heavy, and it, you can't really fault the. But it's hard. You can't fault the musicians really because they change on every track. The only yeah, constant yeah. is the viola player. Mm -hmm. um, the piano heavily accents its chords. The viola plays a kind of staccato or macato pattern in triplets. Uh, this changes as the viola starts playing drawn out double stopped chords over piano chords. Uh, the piano introduces a new section with a rippling arpeggiated figure, and the viola plays a moody melody. The viola mm -hmm. and arpeggiated piano start heading toward a goal and reach it with the repeat of the opening material. A rather heavy, unexciting ending. I wonder if that's due to the players. I don't know, because it says it's supposed to be exuberant. I didn't really hear exuberance here. Mm. Final pieces by Henriette Bosmans. Uh, it's an Arietta Largo, written in 1917. Uh, her years are 1895 to 1952. A romantic-sounding song without words. So that really puts it in the Romantic era. Mm -hmm. Mendelssohn. So we've made a full circle here. Mendelssohn is famous for the songs without words. Um, it's very romantic, starting softly with piano chords and a singing viola line from the beginning. Nice melody. Uh, the viola is the main interest here. Um, this is very much a piece for viola with piano accompaniment. It's a pretty and completely anodyne closer. It's nice. So, hidden gems. What does this jeweler say? Are they gems? Are they genuine? Uh, yeah, I guess so. 
Um, I thought these pieces were interesting enough. I mean, I, there there's certain moments I liked in them, especially in the two Bodding's pieces. Um, but I don't feel like I've been missing anything by not having heard them until now. I mean, I liked it. I think it was a little heavier than it needed to be. Um, but um, I was interested in hearing the Bodding's. I'd like to hear some other works by him just to kind of see where he goes. Are you saying these gems are Fugazi? Is that what they say, Fugazi? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's nice to hear some viola works rather than just violin, violin, violin. I like the warm tone. Um, Dutch works too, all together. Uh, you don't get to hear a lot of Dutch works. You know, the, the only Dutch composer I think of off the top of my head is Louis Andreessen, who recently died. He was he, he did a lot of uh, minimalist type uh, and rock and roll sounding uh, compositions. Hmm. Yeah, I found them interesting. I like the second bodings a little bit more. and uh, I like that second movement, the way it kinda, everything just kind of lifted at the end. It was really yeah. cool. And uh, you end up with a little sweet taste with the Bosmans. It's uh, very warm mm -hmm. and sweet. It's something different. Uh, it certainly was. Kind of interesting uh, in that way, a little diversion and some viola. Nothing, I, I don't know if I'm going to go back to this one or not. It wasn't that big of a draw, but... Uh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. I mean, variety I the, is good. Yeah. So. It's the old faint praise thing. I mean, it wasn't yeah. bad. It was good. It was worth hearing. That's yeah. what I would say. On to jazz. All right. Well, we're going to do something a little different uh, tonight in jazz because, uh, as any regular listeners will know, we are usually very instrumental, instrumentally focused. Um, yeah, but we don't need, we are, but we shouldn't be, I don't think, I don't know. Well, I like instruments I think of the vocal as the voice is just another instrument, really, you know. I, we're not, we're not hearing a sax, we're hearing a voice today. Yeah, but I have to say yeah. that uh, I'm a, a lot more picky <laughs> when it comes to uh, voice, because, you know, the voice is the sound that's uh, closest to our heart, yeah. and... Um, you know, with uh, an, an instrument, any instrument, the tone that you make on an instrument uh, is composed of many things. There's the physical instrument in itself, which will lend a lot, depending on what type of instrument it is, uh, a larger influence on the overall tone. And then you have the own musician's uh, touch, you know, even a piano, which you could say would maybe be the most neutral of instruments. You know, anyone can go up and play a single note. It's the same note inside of a larger composition or something. And um, any musician will get a different tone out of that. And then you have the wind instruments where the musician provides the breath of the instrument. Uh, on a brass instrument, your lips are vibrating and your breath is making an individual sound like that. But there's nothing so individual as the voice, right? So uh, when it comes to a of human voice you either like it or you don't and so that's where i start with my vocal picks you know uh there's some voices that i just don't want to hear anymore it's a you know a couple lines in and it's like no i can't stand it you know you imagine mm -hmm. being in a room with this person and they would drive you crazy uh anyway that's how i feel about vocals uh so uh, i've got a growing uh vocalist and one piece i was uh release I knew I was going to get to. And so I waited till uh, I had a couple picks that I thought uh, would be good to focus on. So tonight, the ladies sing. Yay. 
I like yeah. vocals and jazz. I, I know say, you do. I like that, everything. Though, and that's yeah. why I don't do them very often, because I want to make you wait. <laughs> yeah, so you want to make no. me wait so I get all excited. There you go. No, normally, you know, I'm more excited, like, oh, I've got bass clarinet or trombone well, like, or something like if that. If you're doing and a so, vibes or an organ one, I'm pretty excited yeah, about that. Yeah, or organ we like did last week. Anyway, yeah. it is vocals night, and it's ladies night, and the ladies sing tonight. Well, it's ladies night. Oh, yes, what a that's night. right. I'm going to get sued now, because I just sung a copyrighted song. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was so so departed from the original key and pitch that no one will notice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it won't show up on uh, Shazam or whatever they are. Oh yes, it's yes. ladies' night. Yeah, anyway, um, we've got three ladies' vocals. Uh, just haven't. I, I would like to find some male vocals that I really like too, but they don't come out as often. Uh, but, uh, but there, there weren't that many. Well, not so you know, many. We, yeah. Yeah. Kurt Elling and Kurt uh, Elling. We've yeah, a couple, we, he, couple he's hit or miss before. for us, though. I think yeah. I like some things he does, but not others. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Mm. Anyway, I've got uh, three that I think are worth talking about tonight. We're going to start out with a uh, lady and her debut recording, which I think is really wonderful. And uh, it's more than all right with me, but the title is It's All Right With Me. And this is on Westmont Records by vocalist Liz Terrell. Yeah, I like uh, this one too. She's from uh, Norfolk, Virginia, uh, and at uh, one time studied with uh, Jane Monheit, a uh, big name in uh, vocal jazz. And for me, uh, listening to a number of uh, newer recordings vocal, I was drawn to uh, Liz Terrell's voice from the rich tone of her voice that reminded me a lot of one of my favorite singers, uh, Diane Reeves, uh, who's sort of, I guess, would be my favorite jazz singer, although she doesn't record a lot these days. Uh, not only the tone of her voice, though, uh, Terrell has really nice style and enunciation, which is another thing I listen for. Uh, so enunciation is uh, including pronunciation and the phrasing and the attention to the lyrics and uh, how they're placed within the melodic line that's very important. Uh, also on this recording, especially for a debut, I was impressed with the choice of material and uh, great arrangements and the musicianship of uh, her bandmates here. So on this recording, we've got Liz Terrell on vocals, a uh, fine saxophone player who is also very impressive to me here, Eddie Williams, uh, Daniel Clark on piano, Alan Parker on guitar, Chris Bridge on bass, and let me see if I can pronounce this, Emre Kartari on drums. Is that and, with a Q? What's that? No, uh, K-A-R-T-A-R-I, no? Kartari. Right. Yeah, but okay. the first name is E-M-R-E, -E. Emre? Emre? Emre. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, we'll just call him Kartari. Uh, for <laughs> um, uh, so we've got uh, a nice selection of uh, material with variety here, starting out with People Make the World Go Around. Uh, it's a tune by Tom Bell and Linda Creed from the Stylistics. Oh, yeah. 1972. My um, childhood. <clears throat> that's right. Yeah. Uh, I remember these old stylistic tunes. This one starts out with a kind of ostinato bass groove. We get some nice sparse piano chords and a drum groove 
I've got a nice little rim click in there. And then uh, the sax, tenor sax comes in doubling up on what the bass is doing. Uh, and when Terrell comes in on the melody, you'll get a good sense on this tune of her phrasing and enunciation. Uh, that This right away reminded me of uh, Diane Reeves. I don't know if she's an influence on her or not. Uh, after the first verse and chorus, there's a pause. A new super fast and funky bass groove uh, some really nice bass playing on this album. Uh, gets joined by the guitar, and then the other uh, members join in. As Liz returns and things are a little bit more jazzy in feel, uh, Williams gets an intense tenor sax solo here, and then Terrell comes back uh, for another round of verse and chorus as they groove out at the end, where Terrell adds a nice vocalization uh, and a repeat of the title lyric. Uh, very nice arrangement of this uh, old tune that I remember for a start. Uh, track two and three, we're going to go traditional with Cole Porter tunes. Track two, It's All Right With Me. This begins with the slow drum groove. Terrell comes in on the melody alone over that groove. When the piano and bass join in, uh, they get a kind of even Latin-y feel uh, for a groove going along, which is a nice twist on this jazz standard. Uh, Terrell phrases everything really nicely here. She finds just the right spots to make things a little bit bluesy in the melody uh, on lines like such tempting lips. She really pushes that uh, with a little <laughs> pitch bend. Uh, just the right spots. Nice taste. Uh, Williams gives a restrained and tasty sax solo here. I like the sparse arrangement and space between the instruments. Uh, and what I like about Terrell is she's got a She's got a powerful voice. She, oh, yeah. You can tell. Yeah, I but she, this too. She doesn't overdo it. Uh, she right. holds back uh, mature restraint, uh, which is nice to see on her first uh, big release here. Uh, she yeah, gets this, some, is, this is not a woman who sings like a bird. It's kind of, she's got, she's got some tone yeah, in this she's voice. She's got some it's gusto. Really nice and, and heaviness uh, as well. Uh, uh, richness to her voice. Uh, impressive rising vocal cries at the end before the sex uh, and piano groove out. Uh, and she assures us uh, before we go away that it's all right. Uh, repeating those yeah. tags at the end. Uh, then we get to uh, another famous Cole Porter tune, Night and Day. Uh, Terrell starts this one out all on her own. Uh, the band joins in on the word day, right? Night and day. And nice. they follow her along yeah. in a rubato waves of uh, backing uh, in the arrangement. Uh, here... Terrell shows really good pitch control through her phrases. The next time around, it breaks into a mid-tempo swing groove. Uh, Parker gets a guitar solo with a nice compact tone and rhythm, uh, rhythmic punch. Uh, some mm -hmm. nice double stops going along in what he's playing there. Really cool. Terrell comes back for a final chorus, and they slow up and repeat the final line for a classy ending. Hmm. Uh, now, on to uh, <laughs> track four, yeah, Blue Monk, yeah. Uh, Thelonious Monk tune, uh, one of his most recorded tunes and, you know, often played at uh, jam sessions by jazz players. We don't often hear it sung. Uh, however, uh, going back, I think, let's see, 1961, I think Abby Lincoln was the first vocalist to uh, add uh, lyrics to it. And uh, so here we start out with uh, Terrell vocalizing the melody in unison with the bass, which makes a nice intro. Uh, it's very cool. Uh, she switches to the lyrics uh, the next time around the melody. 
Uh-huh. So these are the yeah. these are the the lyrics from the sixties, right? Right, Abby, right. Okay, I think okay. Abby Lincoln has actually wrote the lyrics here. Uh, okay. So she, and the next time around, it's a twelve bar blues form. Uh, she does that, and the sax joins in for a few fills. Uh, very great phrasing, nice blues sense from Terrell. Uh, Bridge gets a loping woody bass solo here, and uh, Parker it's a very harmonically interesting <laughs> guitar solo yeah, uh, so too. <laughs> on here. He gets some tremolo going, a uh, pitch bending, fancy picking too. Uh, kind of like one of those 1950s kind of like lo- sad lonesome chords that yeah, you get yeah. on those like, uh, mm. you know. I'm trying to think of an example, but I, none's coming to mind anyway. All right. Yeah, and uh, another... Uh, Nice, uh, playfully relaxed tenor solo from Williams. I, I really enjoyed his sax playing on this uh, recording, too. Uh, a great supporting musician. And then Terrell gets another verse and a final round of vocalizations uh, to wrap up a nice little blues tune. Yeah, the, the bass I wanted to mention is really noticeable on this track, too, and mm-hmm. I really liked his playing a lot. That was yeah, good. deep and woody, uh, good yeah. bass playing. Good recording, uh, too. Track five... Uh, Cindy Lauper, Cindy Lauper. <laughs> yeah, this, this has really become a jazz standard. I've heard a lot yeah. of people cover this tune time um, after time. Yeah. That, uh, what's the uh, the uh, singer who did this? Um, well, she uh, did who, it first. Who, who, Cindy no, Lauper. yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of the vocalist uh, who uh, died uh, uh, before she got really famous. Uh, uh, it'll come to me. Uh, uh, Eva Cassidy. Oh. That's it, yeah. And so she did a touching version of this. Um, and actually, I think Miles Davis recorded this too. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, it's that. a song that lends itself to lots of interpretations. And so uh, on this uh, version here, they give it a new rhythmic feel with a very cool bass line uh, that pushes it along. I like Terrell's phrasing and enunciation here too, uh, transforming you know, this kind of pop number that has lots of possibilities within it. Uh, Parker gets another imaginative guitar solo and Clark's piano solo has uh, nice nice rhythmic ideas and chimey chords. Uh, Terrell comes back for the final verse and chorus and she ends it down in her uh, warm lower register uh, for a nice effect. Uh, We're going to go a little bit further back in time Track six, I'm going to laugh you right out of my life. Cy Coleman, Joseph McCarthy from 1955. Uh, This tune gets a medium even beat, uh, tight cymbals uh, dividing up the beat. It's a good vehicle to show off Terrell's phrasing. She gets some nice rubato kind of phrases at the end of the verse. I like the way she chokes off a bit on the vocals with uh, broke my heart. Uh, it's a nice effect, uh, emotional kind of reading into the line. Uh, also on this tune, Clark has a delicate and pretty piano solo uh, before Terrell comes back for a final go-around. Uh, track seven is a long melody of uh, Fats Waller tunes. It's just called Fats Waller Melody. We get Ain't Misbehaving, The Jitterbug Waltz, and Honeysuckle Rose. It begins with a loping bass intro. Terrell starts out softly with a nice swing and bluesy phrases. Uh, Bridge has a melodic bass solo before Terrell joins in on the bridge of the tune. And a final chorus, uh, the piano picks up from the final hold, uh, gives an interlude into a rubato start to 
the next tune in the medley, uh, Jitterbug Waltz. A trail shows some smokiness and spouts here in between the cascading melody phrases of this tune. Uh, Clark has a trilly and rolling piano solo, and uh, trail gets uh, more bluesy on the final verse. Uh, after that, a drum solo transitions into the final tune of the melody. Uh, the bass adds a groove for Terrell to start out uh, on two, uh, Honeysuckle Rose. This is a very swinging, uh, jazzy version. Terrell breaks into scat singing in the next time around the verse, uh, and then she comes back to the lyrics with a great swing feeling and a nice bluesy ending. Uh, so a uh, nice uh, arrangement tying these uh, Fats Waller tunes together. Uh, very classy. I like the sparse arrangements. Uh, all the uh, band members add enough to push it along, uh, add some extra spice, but uh, Terrell's voice remains the centerpiece. Yeah, uh, nice to hear these songs sung, too, as you usually yeah. hear them played on the piano. You know, they, they yep. should really be performed more often, I think. Yep. Uh, track eight, uh, an arresting version of this uh, painfully uh, pretty song by Elvis Costello, Almost Blue. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can hear going back, uh, Chet Baker performed this song a lot towards the end of his career. Uh, yeah. This is really great. Uh, sparse piano intro. Uh, it's just piano and voice throughout the whole tune. Uh, Terrell does a great job on this one. Haunting melody really shows off her phrasing. Uh, and the different range of tones she can get uh, from her voice. Overall, uh, working through this melody, uh, knowing just where, you know, the uh, sort of, uh, how yeah. can I say, the, the, the climaxes and the emotions of the song come through, you get an overall lasting impression of the warmth of her voice here. A very touching rendition. Yeah, Elvis Costello's version of this really kind of seared itself into my head when mm. I first heard it I believe in the 1980s and it's a lot like this she pretty much follows his template yeah. but Elvis Costello when he sings it he sounds kind of numb and uh, she yeah. goes for some shocked sort of hesitant attack on the notes like she's almost mm. like can't believe what happened to yeah. her you know yeah. um, she, she has lots of blue notes and slightly flat notes in her line which kind of makes it even more yeah pulls out touch. the pain I really of it enjoyed yeah. that yeah so yeah. good very good uh, track I, hope nine. Elvis, I hope Elvis heard it yeah, oh, you should, yeah. Should, yeah. Um, well, he's uh, married to, uh, what's her name? Diana Krall, D- isn't Diana Krall, he? yeah. 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 Um, track Nine's a song uh, that often pops up at jazz jam sessions, but I don't hear it uh, sung very often. Uh, Steve Kuhn's The Saga of Harrison Crab Feathers, which is uh, a tune with a lot of interesting uh, harmonic things going on. Uh, here, uh, we get a bass groove, some spacey guitar effects, uh, to make an interesting atmosphere uh, to get this one going. Terrell takes the melody for a nice ride over the changing harmonies uh, and different rhythmic feels. Uh, I think it's in 3-4, but uh, it breaks up into uh, t- different kind of rhythmic segments over the melody. Uh, Parker uh, has a lost in space kind of <laughs> reverby guitar <laughs> solo here. Yeah, practically <laughs> swimming in yeah. this one. is so yeah, much like reverb on this guitar. 1950s robots uh, moving along yeah. here. Uh, and Clark, uh, in contrast, gets a more rhythmic piano solo. Uh, Bridge also has a bass solo in this one. And then Terrell comes back uh, for another verse uh, and some nice vocalizations to end it. Uh, we'll switch 
more traditional track 10 don't get around much anymore duke ellington a straight swinging version of this uh, classic tune trill makes it sassy and fun on the first verse uh, handing it off to clark for a rollicking piano solo uh, when Terrell comes back again it's more jazzy uh, having fun with the lyrics a bit of scat singing for a fun ending uh, so right into the traditional vein here and track 11 uh, <laughs> uh, uh, go back to the 70s again what the world needs now uh, Bert Bacharach uh, lyrics from Hal David um, now uh, what I want to say about this tune is I I never liked this tune um, well, neither did I the thing is these songs all came out in the 70s exactly you know, like, what the world love sweet love and you heard like yeah. uh, Stevie Wonder sing loves a need of love today and yeah. the 70s were just like a horrible time yeah. <laughs> what I'm going to say terrible uh, violence what I want to say about really this horrible. is um, I think of the Patty Hearst thing and, oh man <laughs> <laughs> but um you know, you think that's what the world needs now? It's it's, it's always needed. We might need, yeah, we might need something else now. I don't know. Yeah. But um, <laughs> anyway, one of the one of the problems with this song and Burt Bacharach songs in general, because Burt Bacharach actually, he you know he knew like jazz harmony really well, and he used it in his songs. But I think the problem with the original version, well, there's two problems. One of which. Well, both of which are solved in this uh, rendition of it. The first problem was Dionne Warwick, because uh, <laughs> what I, I realized, song. I, I'll have to, yeah. I have to say, because you know these songs, Burt Bacharach was, uh, it was on the radio all the time when I was growing up, and so yeah. you know all these songs were in the car and all around, and so I know all the words whether I want to or not right. uh, from growing up. But so the other one from this time is uh, you know Dionne Warwick, say a little prayer for me. Right. I remember that one too. That, yeah. that, 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 that. And it sounds so robotic and mannequin and like, and I never liked that tune until I heard Aretha Franklin sing it. Yeah. And then it, it was like I was transported, you know, on a soul rocket to a different level. And I could realize, okay, you know, the singer and interpretation really makes, uh, you know, a song go to a different place so uh you know if you have never heard that version of it compared to the dm warwick version it's a, a completely different emotional experience uh mm -hmm. the aretha franklin uh version of that is incredible now yeah, so dm warwick was very much a pop singer though yeah, she didn't yeah, really yeah. go for any soul or anything no, like that no, no. So, yeah kind of wooden yeah. in my estimation but mm -hmm. anyway just my opinion but what's interesting here is uh, as I said, I didn't care for this tune originally, but it's very much transformed here. Uh, so now the original version is three four. Right? Yeah, I remember that. Da, that's swaying And that's the kind of one of the other things I didn't like. About yeah, <laughs> the, they really bring out the syncopated nature of that. You know, da da. Dun, dun, dun. But here it's completely different. Actually, here it's transformed into four four time. Yeah, I I was trying to count because I said I yeah. remembered this in three four, and I'm like, oh, this is yeah. in four. This is really yeah. weird, you know. So it's stretched out, yeah. and yeah. Uh, what I think it just makes it that much better, and it the way that the new time signature works and allows for uh, Terrell to phrase it 
more wonderfully. And I, I think uh, it transforms the tune for me. And it really shows off the warmth of her voice. It gives a little bit extra space in the different time signature. And uh, at this point, I'm thinking, well, I'm, well, I'm liking this. I'm, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to like anything she sings. Okay. Uh, yeah. She's going to be one of these singers that I'm going to really just like. Um, so, uh, yeah, even in this uh, tune, which I didn't want to like, but then <laughs> I started to like it. Uh, also, here, uh, Williams comes back again. A nice smoky tenor solo with bite and lots of space. Uh, he's impressed me through this whole album with his ability to change his approach on the sax to match whatever the atmosphere of the tune is. Uh, and then when Terrell comes back in with the strong final verse, uh, William stays on with the sax uh, to pepper in some sax fills, uh, and they fade it out nicely together. So I found a new singer that I really like um, because she just has a wonderful uh, tone to her voice. Uh, phrasing, enunciation is great. She's got a good sense of swing, nice blues, and for you know, a young singer, she's got a mature restraint uh, that keeps you listening more. And she's always got more uh, in reserve that she could uh, be pushing. But she uh, holds that back with, uh, you know, artistic sensibility uh, and never overdoes it. So uh, I am very pleased with this album. Check it out. Uh, once again, it's a uh, debut album on Westmont Records. It's All Right With Me by Liz Terrell, and I'm excited to see what she does next. Yeah. One of the things that is the difference between, say, jazz vocals and, like, rock vocals. Like, rock vocals, they have effects on them, and they're generally not up front in the mix the way jazz vocals mm. are. I really like the way jazz vocals are so clean, and then you get, like, these singers who can pronounce the words, like, very clearly, and right. there's no, you know, there's no doubt as to what they're singing. Um, I liked her, uh, yeah, she's got this kind of heavy but smooth and powerful voice, and yet we never heard her at full power here. The, you see, as a classical music listener, I would always expect to hear one point right. where this person's just really going to sing out. And we don't get that here, and I really kind of appreciated that, too. She's yeah. really going, she's really serving the song. Um, yeah. Just hearing you talk about this made me like it even more, actually. I did like it when I heard mm. it, but as I know. And I, going through the songs like this, um, there are a lot of uh, familiar songs on this that I really liked already. Time yeah. after time, almost blue. The um, yeah, yeah, and this the uh, transformation of what the world needs now too. Yeah, so, I think yeah, this, I think this might be a keeper. This is good. It's a good one. Yeah, and uh, hmm. yeah, maybe the standout, uh, the emotional vulnerability, and just being out there with the voice on almost blue with only the piano. Uh, yeah, that one was a kind of. Uh, made the mark for me uh, yeah. as, as in terms of you know artistic statement but it's all really good so check it out gets my recommendation and I don't yeah, give those out too. I don't give those out lightly for vocal <laughs> albums especially for so, vocalists yeah, yeah. So. let me tell you <laughs> I, I know from experience here <laughs> alright uh, moving on another one uh, almost well if that was almost blue this is almost a debut because uh, this artist has released an EP in the, fa in the past but this one is her first formal uh, full length and this is uh, by Anna Lauren Laura Quinn uh, opened the door opened the door on Outside in Music. And so uh, NLR Quinn is a vocalist who's... Now, now she's getting some uh, buzz and attention in the jazz press. Uh, she grew up uh, listening to uh, jazz music in uh, San Francisco. Uh, but uh, then she moved down to New Orleans uh, to 
do some jazz studies in a master's program at the University of New Orleans. Uh, and uh, she, uh, let's see, performed at the 50th annual New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival in 2019. Uh, 2018, she released a debut EP, I Feel the Sudden Urge to Sing. And uh, so now here she is uh, in 2022 with a full-length album release. Uh, it's, as I said, called Open the Door. Uh, so Anna Laura Quinn on vocals, Ed Barrett on guitar, Ben Fox on bass, Brad Webb on drums, Kate Campbell-Strauss on tenor sax and barry sax brent rose on tenor sax uh also on this recording uh so this one's got some interesting uh arrangements and uh tune selections we start out with uh talking to the sun an abby lincoln tune uh quinn starts this one out uh, a cappella and a bit rubato uh under which a percussive uh beat comes in and she continues uh, above that She's got a kind of tight, almost nervous vibrato in her longer notes, uh, which I picked up on hmm. kind of right away, especially after the previous recording as being kind of unique. Bass and guitar join in uh, after the next verse of this tune, and we get a uh, unexpected uh, treat on this album is the flute work, uh, uh, which is, I believe, from Rose here. It's kind of a nice floating flute uh solo. Uh, next you get a tenor sax solo. I think this is from Campbell Strauss, uh, looking at the performer's notes. Uh, Queen comes back for another verse and the saxon flute adds some uh, harmony lines for support. She ends up with a nice phrase of intervals to the final note. Uh, track two, Comes Love. Uh, this is uh, an old tune, 1939. Uh, Sam H. Sept with lyrics by Lou Brown and Charles Tobias. Uh, we get a guitar intro, a tense interval uh, in there, in the guitar, <laughs> uh, into some chords, and then a loping bass line. Uh, Quinn swings the melody with a lilt to her phrasing uh, in the higher register. The saxes provide some backing, and there's a relaxed tenor solo. Uh, Queen comes back for another round, ending with a breathy phrase into a little uh, coda tag of bass, of bass sax and some vocalization. Uh, I think with uh, this singer, uh, Anna Quinn, uh, her strength is in her kind of uh, phrasing. She doesn't have a, a thick, uh, strong voice, Uh uh, it doesn't have the fullness uh, that you might expect, uh, but she has kind of a uh, enthusiastic uh, swinging kind of uh, style uh, that carries her through the tunes, uh, and uh, I think that's kind of yeah. She's a, she's got a voice. like a bright voice yeah, as opposed to Liz, Liz yeah. Terrell, who's got a more heavy. And she's mm -hmm. got yeah, she's got she's got energy as energy, well. Yeah, yeah so yeah. that's she's going to be more on the Ella Fitzgerald side rather than, say, the Sarah Vaughan right. side. Um, right. And I like this kind of a breathiness to a lot of her yeah. approach to some of these songs. I do like that. I like it when the, mm. people use the mic to kind of get their ah, breathy quality <laughs> in there. You know, I, I, I do like that. Yeah. Yeah. Track three, uh, Speak Low, uh, Kurt Weil, uh, with lyrics by Ogden Nash. Uh, it's Kurt, real... Kurt Weil, I think yeah, pronounced. Vial. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Vial. who wrote lots of great jazz standards. Uh, yeah. Very funky vamping guitar, 
uh, intro from Barrett with a nice flute solo again here. Uh, Quinn phrases the waltzing melody nicely with supporting sax and flute lines. They break it down to some rubato pauses before continuing with another verse. Uh, Rose has another uh, flute solo in this one, and it's cool and breathy. Uh, Quinn comes back for a final verse with a rubato start, and they vamp out on the end, repeating speak low, speak low with some flute fills and final drums. We're going to hear some other like flute solos on this album, and I think it's a really nice choice considering the quality of her voice, which I said is kind of breathy and yeah, energetic yeah. and high. Right. It, it just complements her so well. It was a nice choice, I thought. Yeah, I like the flute. Uh, track four, very good advice. Uh, Sammy Fain, Bob Hilliard tune. Uh, Quinn sings the melody over a tightly harmonized vocal arrangement. I guess it's herself overdubbed. Uh, it's swinging cute and nostalgic, but it only lasts about a minute and a half and then it's over. Uh, but a nice little oh, tidbit. Oh yeah, this was really uh, short. There. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go classic uh, jazz standard. Cole Porter Love for Sale. Bass ostinato start. Sparse guitar. Harmonized sax lines to make the mood here. Quinn sings it light and smoky. Uh, to the even subdivided beat treatment that they give this tune. I like a relaxed phrasing and little bluesy touches. Barrett has a chordy guitar solo and Fox a rhythmic bass solo over the drum heartbeat kind of uh, beat that's formed under it. Quinn comes back for a vocalized verse with a lot of bluesy phrases before getting back to the lyrics. She keeps the bluesy lilting approach as they repeat to the end. Yeah, I think uh, Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga had covered this song. Yeah, everyone does this song, as well. Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, often covered standard. Uh, now we're going to get something a little unusual. Uh, it's a very nice uh, melody uh, to this tune, an Ellis Marsalis tune, Cry Again. Uh, it begins with a rubato guitar intro for this pretty melody. Quinn comes in over just the guitar. She's a little smoky and breathy here between the higher notes. Uh, Barrett goes round on his own for a bit, keeping the melody, uh, bass, and chords nicely outlined on the guitar, all on his lonesome. Uh, Quinn joins back in to the end with the final verse. Just voice and guitar makes a kind of vulnerable impression, but it works well for her in this tune. Then we're going to get to the title track, number seven, Open the Door, uh, Betty Carter tune. Lightly waltzing cymbals and airy sax lines over the bass uh, set a dreamy mood. Quinn sings the melody loosely and relaxed, and it goes with the sparse arrangement. Well, the saxes kick in for some lifting support. Uh, tenor saxes have a nice arrangement of answering each other, and then each one gets a smooth solo uh, of their own. Quinn comes back in, and the melody calls for some swooping phrases, which she handles pretty well, but I feel this one's a stretch of her voice a bit. You think so? I thought, okay. yeah. I, th I, thought I thought there was a bit of a Mar Marilyn Monroe type uh, teasingness yeah, to her voice here. I'm, I don't know. I'm yeah. not sure. Um, mm. I, I do like the overall lazy feel of the tune. It's enjoyable, mm. but yeah. uh, I was uh, uh, kind of <laughs> a little bit worried <laughs> thing on the stretching there. Uh, just my own feeling. Um, track eight, uh, a tune we heard uh, two weeks ago. Uh, on that wonderful bass clarinet uh, Lawrence of Arabia <laughs> uh, album of uh, a Frenchman there uh, single pedal of a rose uh, Duke Ellington Billy Strayhorn tune uh, here uh, rather than uh, bass clarinet we've got big baritone sax on yeah. the rubato melody phrases which Quinn has uh 
made sort of answering phrases too with uh, harmonized vocal phrasing. It's a very unique arrangement. Uh, the vocals get some bluesy phrases to them, and there are some pauses and interesting harmonies uh, to end it. Uh, this is a very unique uh, approach uh, to this uh, vocal set against Barry Sachs. Uh, yes, yeah, and I'm guessing those vocals are you know, double tracked in the studio. Oh, right? yeah. They're yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah, so this it's not a live performance, mm. really. Yeah. And she's harmonizing with herself. Uh, track nine, wouldn't be lovely. Learner and low, of course, from My Fair Lady. Uh, <laughs> I got to tell you something about this song later. Okay. Yeah. Uh, starts with two tenor saxes that give a question and answer intro, uh, which is joined, uh, interestingly, by some bowed bass. Uh, a contrasting chunky groove on guitar sets the tempo for the song some bluesy sax figures it's laid back tempo that quinn uh sings the tune over in a relaxed way with a good sense of swing uh, barrett has a funky and fun guitar solo and then a tenor sax solo after that uh, quinn comes back for another verse uh bluesy fun before making a neat and dainty end so overall it's a fun listen uh, i like quinn's uh rhythmic sense uh, I like their interesting approach to some melodies that create a fun atmosphere. Uh, the arrangements are unique and the instrumentation is interesting uh, with the flute. Uh, I like the Barry sax. Uh, all the musicians are great and I like her take on uh, an interesting arrangement of some of these tunes. I think uh, you know she doesn't have a very powerful voice. Uh, it's good in the higher register, a swinging and lilting uh, kind of thing. Uh, meets her nature uh i think she captures like a new orleans vibe and style very well uh and uh, she can be an entertaining singer uh yeah we'll, we'll see what uh she comes up with next uh, yeah on this album i really like the uh the program i thought uh it was a really interesting choice of mm -hmm. uh, tunes that she sang uh and, and they're very varied uh some of them really famous some of them not uh, mm -hmm. just the the fact that she studied in new orleans and did an ellis marsalis song you, you right. just don't get to hear those and it's really just great yeah to have that here um yeah the, again i mentioned earlier the choice of the flute as a solo instrument on this album complements her voice exceptionally well it kind of it's because they're they're kind of similar there's a breathiness to her voice and i think the flute kind of makes you aware of that so i think it's a really smart recording and i was also happy to hear um her rendition of wouldn't it be lovely loverly wouldn't it be mm -hmm. loverly at the end because my experience with this song <laughs> in eighth grade um uh -oh. we, we already talked about west side story yeah we did and yeah. this this one was the the eighth grade musical my fair lady where i played the role of professor zoltan karpathy the hungarian uh, linguist <laughs> but <laughs> but the 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 girl they got to sing you know we were all eight, we were all 13 years old when we put this on and they had to do you know eliza's cockney accent you know so uh -oh. it, we just kind of thought oh it had to sound awful we didn't know what a cockney accent sounded well i can apparently needed to our director so she kind of came up with this kind of like almost guttural like ow kind of sound you know, <laughs> you know like, like fred drescher or something, or something doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like she was iggy pop or something you know and <laughs> when she sang this song she tried to sing it in that voice and she was going how would it it'd be lovely and I, was, I still hear it like that today and so I'm just relieved to to hear a really good performance of that song oh boy just my musical past boy 
Ooh. So many great songs were ruined by the 1970s wow. and my school life. But oh, uh, younger younger musicians today are making it all right, and I'm happy about that. Yeah, it's good therapy and, for you. I'm yeah, glad. I need it. That's why I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure was, I was born because I had to do therapy for some life that I lived before that that was really horrible. <laughs> it's all your musical karma. It's just coming yeah, out. coming back to me. Oh, well, yes. at least I get to hear it all. That's cool. I'm like, happy with that. All right, now the whole reason that I <laughs> decided course. to put this musical episode of vocals uh, together uh, that got me into a vocal mood is uh, my current favorite vocalist. Uh, since Diane Reeves is not recording much anymore, I've been smitten by uh, the recordings of this lady, uh, the wonderful Catherine Russell. Yeah, uh -huh. and so have I. Uh, this Catherine Russell is a um, an adult music favorite. Okay, oh, yeah. so she's uh, she can do really no wrong in our ears, unless yeah. she actually does. But you know, I doubt she will. <laughs> yeah, and so um, this is her latest release, just out April first on Dot Time Records. Send for me, and anytime she sent for me, I would go running because yeah, this so is I. the voice that has everything that I want to hear. Um, you know, as I said, my favorite uh, vocalist, just in terms of pure uh, tone, is uh, Diane Reeves. But Catherine Russell has just about everything that uh, I look for in a vocalist uh, in that uh, she inhabits a tune uh, and makes you believe every line of it uh, and brings complete joy uh, yeah, you. So that's she, that's a big plus for me. Yeah, I really a look big for plus. That. Uh, when you listen to her sing, uh, she's going to put you in a good mood, and uh, she has all the right arrangements and musicians surrounding her to do that. Now, so she's got a really interesting, um, you know, background because she comes from a musical pedigree. Uh, her father, Luis Russell, uh, was. Uh, Panamanian, uh, lived in New Orleans uh, and then New York City. He was a jazz man, pianist, composer himself, and uh, he was the musical director for Louis Armstrong in the 40s. And her mother, uh, Carleen Ray, was also a uh, jazz musician, uh, played bass, a vocalist. Uh, I think she went to uh, a bunch of music schools, Juilliard, Manhattan School of Music, and uh, performed with a lot of uh, famous musicians too. But uh, Catherine Russell, for most of her career, uh, was uh, kind of a backup singer, uh, working with the artists like Paul Simon. Uh, you can see her on YouTube uh, backing up David Bowie, uh, Steely Dan, even Cyndi wow. Lauper, uh, artists like that. And uh, she did a lot of uh, kind of... Uh, TV and radio commercials, uh, things like Bud Light, uh, Dairy Queen, and some other commercials. You know, Good God, this fabulous voice just, mm. um, you know, in the music business, but not out in front where it should be. Uh, yeah, so well, she it's there now. So that's, yeah. that's what matters. So yeah. She started to come into her own in this new century. Started out uh, 2006 with Cat, uh, then 2008 Sentimental Streak. Uh, Inside This Heart of Mine, 2009, Strictly Romance in 2012, Bring It Back, 2014, and then more recently, Harlem On My Mind, 2016, and Alone Together, 2019. Both of those uh, most recent recordings got Grammy nominations. 
And yeah. uh, I feel she should have won uh, because well, yeah. uh, I feel she's, uh, as a singer, head and shoulders above the the uh, picked uh, winners in that category. But that's why I don't talk about awards because... Uh, I'm you know. just going to say right now, just for the listeners, if you want to make a bet on next year's Grammy Awards, which they haven't even announced who's nominated yet, but Catherine Russell will almost inevitably be nominated. But again, yeah. you know, I want her to win the Grammy. I think this yeah. is, this is going to be one of my top albums of the year without a doubt, just to, you know, kind of tell you the punchline before the uh, joke. But yeah. uh, she, she, the, the winner of the category this year is going to be Cecile McLaurin Salvant because she always wins and she's got a new album this year. And it's good, but I mean, I would prefer to to I would prefer for this to win because I just That's love her unmentionable style so much. for me. Uh, yeah, so, uh, we'll just but skip I mean, over that. So so anyway, if you want to make a bundle, a, a packet, you should bet on Cecile McLaurin Salvant to win the uh, vocal award next year because yeah. it's just inevitable. It always they don't seem to know who the other singers are. They just yeah. keep picking the same. And ones. you can bet on me not yeah. not l- allowing that to appear on this podcast. But anyway, uh, okay. Uh, back yeah, I heard it though. I thought it was good. Anyway, I know back you're not a fan. But I like her. She's good. Back to uh, Catherine yeah. Russell. The other uh, great thing uh, about her and what she's done is she's carved this unique niche of, uh, and, and she's gradually honed this approach through the albums uh, that I mentioned. Uh, you know her uh, catalog now, where she has uh, found this approach to mine this wealth of. Uh, forgotten jazz and R&B repertoire that she brings back and makes completely fresh uh, with great arrangements and adds, you know, her wonderful singing style to that. And so this is, you know, like about the fifth album uh, among her releases that uh, does that, digs deep into this uh, American uh, music catalog, finding these little gems, uh, and ma- she gets them all polished and sparkly. And uh, she knows how to, you know, treat a song. And uh, she's going to take on a little musical voyage uh, through here. Yeah, I want to say something about you. You're talking about her approach in general, but in order to do what she does, she has to have a really deep understanding of jazz history because yeah. mm-hmm. the 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 vocals in each of these songs just fit the song so well. It's yep. not just that she inhabits, the, you know, like you said, she inhabits the song, but part of what that means is that she has like a complete understanding of the style. It's almost yeah. like she's a, a, a singer from that period right. singing it. exactly. And it's well, really incredible. She comes from this musical background. Her parents, obviously, you know, she grew up around uh, this music. So she knows how to interpret these different period styles and the, you know what's more she's amassed a band of musicians who transport you back to that time and it's, it's almost it's like remarkable. Yeah, yeah you're you're listening to a band in harlem but in modern uh you know cd quality uh sound right. it's uh, so incredible these musicians are great and so on this album with Catherine Russell on vocals, uh, also adding some uh, little percussion accessories and hand clapping. We've got uh, uh, her normal collaborator here, uh, Matt Munisteri on uh, guitar, who's also her musical director and plays banjo on this album too. Uh, He's a really great musician. Tal Ronan on bass. Uh, uh, We've got Mark McLean on drums. Uh, Mark Shane on piano. Also, some tracks, uh, Sean Mason on piano as well. Uh, trumpet, 
Jean-Eric Kelso, trombone, Jean Allred, uh, various reeds, including clarinet, uh, Evan Arntzen, uh, Paul Nidzilla on Barry Sax on track nine, uh, Mark Lopeman, tenor sax on track two, along with Aaron uh, Hick, tenor sax, uh, Philip Norris on tuba, which we'll get to when we get to it, right. and uh, Paul Kahn uh, adding some hand claps here. Uh, and so, <clears throat> the musical journey of through tunes here is uh, it needs a little bit of uh, uh, detail too, otherwise we don't do a good service to this. Uh, we start out with a tune, uh, Did I Remember, uh, by Harold Adamson and Walter Donaldson. Now, this was recorded by Tommy Dorsey, and his orchestra uh, with a vocal refrain by Edith Wright uh, recorded in 1936. So it's an old one. Yeah. Uh, and it starts fittingly with a trumpet and clarinet intro. Uh, Russell sings this melody, takes you back in time. You get a joyous little clarinet solo by uh, Arnson here over some fun plinky piano by Mark Shane. I yeah, think it's a little... Yeah, the clarinet solo is that licorice stick. Yeah, the licorice solo stick. that yeah. uh, Benny Goodman Way used to back get, in time, know? it's time yeah. period appropriate. Uh, and uh, Shane gets a nice little solo here before the band arrangement comes back in. Uh, wonderful time appropriate uh, trumpet solo by uh, Jean-Eric Kelso. Uh, these guys make you feel like you're listening to an old record with that perfect swing style phrasing and tones, but it's in modern <laughs> uh, Yeah, in a modern recording quality. studio with no background noise. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, Russell really... comes back in for one more time around, uh, just right in that time period style to take it out. Uh, so going back to the 30s for the first one. Uh, track two, Send For Me, a tune by Ollie Jones, uh, this was uh, written by Ollie Jones, performed by uh, Nat King Cole, featuring the McCoy Boys. This one was a number one uh, hit on the U.S. R&B chart uh, and number six on the pop chart in 1957. Uh, so now we're going to go a little bit more R&B style here. Uh, it gets a bluesy groove. Uh, Russell digs in, adds nice bluesy embellishments, uh, hand claps here. Uh, Matt Munisteri has a guitar solo that's both jazzy and bluesy. Russell comes back in uh, over some stop time, builds the phrases uh, up with the help of the band. There's a nice piano solo by Sean Mason with uh, blues licks. Nice trills in there too. Uh, Russell comes back in once more. The sax is swinging hard underneath her, adding some fills. There's a dirty tenor sax solo that takes it out uh, to the end. So a nice uh, resurgence of a tune from the 50s. Uh, I like how she balances out the jazz and sort of R&B uh, yeah, There's a real soulful tunes. approach to this song, yeah. I said. Yeah, I, It brought back that era, really magical right. time as far as music went, right. <laughs> about everything else. Now we're going to get a, another uh, time capsule tune, uh, At the Swing Cat's Ball, and uh, this is uh, credited to her father. Louis Russell and William Campbell. Uh, but uh, I think this was uh, made uh, into a, a popular tune by Louis Jordan. 
Going back to 1939, uh, Louis Jordan was a sax player and band leader that innovated the jump style blues uh, that was uh, kind of popular for dancing back in the 30s and 40s. Uh, this one's got a great horn arrangement uh, that continues with tight hits uh, as Russell comes in, starts singing the tune. Uh, the lyrics uh, refer back to the instruments playing at this ball and when she mentions the trumpet or trombone they join in uh in an answering phrase so it's kind of a cute musical interaction uh after the verse we get a trombone solo and then trumpet and tenor sax uh another full band interlude which brings russell swinging back in and the band carries it on over the huge backbeat uh like a swing backbeat for a while and then russell gets a final farewell stanza over the beat before it closes out. Uh, so not really great retro uh, feel, uh, bringing you back to that time period. Uh, now we're gonna get a little ballad, uh, Make It Last, the title track. Uh, Dick Hames, uh, a singer himself uh, and songwriter, uh, and Bill Saxton tune that was recorded by Betty Carter on her album Out There from 1958. Uh, it starts out with a nice trumpet intro uh, this is a great vehicle to showcase Russell's sublime phrasing. Mm. Uh, she inhabits this song, makes you believe every word. That's one of the keys to a great singer. Uh, you know, that was actually a criticism of Frank Sinatra. Uh, Someone said, that fool, <laughs> he believes every word that he's singing. You know, yeah. That's why the audience gets That's why he's, we still drawn listen to him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, the horns provide subtle support behind her. Uh, the trumpet returns for our middle melodic interlude. And then Russell comes back for the final verses and repeats uh, the line, make it last, over pauses for a nice, subtle, dramatic ending. Uh, she's always in control, and she makes it sound so easy. Uh, yeah, th this particular tune um, has real vocal riches in it because mm. it's it's got like repetitive material, but it never sounds repetitive because of the singer's phrasing. Yeah, um, Russell, she has so many subtle shades of phrasing and tone, and it, the, it yeah. keeps your ear engaged throughout. Really fantastic yeah. performance here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, she can really do wonders with uh, ballads too. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, the recording before last um, was there's uh, one hard tune on that, my mind that one uh, yeah th there's the one tune on that the ballad that just always gives me chills when I listen to it um, yeah. um, don't take your love from me yeah that you know what what I really love that she always does but on uh, especially on a ballad you know a song that will have multiple verses maybe a solo section she's very keenly aware of where the climax of the song should be mm -hmm. and she saves it up just for that point and you know so she she really structures and uh saves enough in the tank and gets that just the tension uh, on the right point of the arc of the song every time it's just in her nature and uh yeah, I, she can't be beat when it comes to just knowing how the song is structured and where she's going to uh, use her voice uh, there. And yeah, this is a really nice arrangement of this one too. But that one, uh, "Don't Take Your Love from Me," that that's my favorite sort of uh, hair-standing uh, song of of hers in the ballad yeah. uh, thing. Uh, track five. Uh, let's get a little uh, obscure 
here going back to the 50s, uh, going back to New Orleans, Joe Liggins. This is an early 50s swinging jump blues uh, by Joe Liggins and the Honey Drippers. Uh, here, they slow it down a bit compared to the original style, make it a real New Orleans style with tuba, bass, and banjo. Uh, Russell sings it bluesy and sassy. They change up the beat for a section of the melody. It's got kind of a double chime feel with drum toms. And then we get a tuba solo. Wow, you don't get that very often uh, from <laughs> Philip Norris. And uh, then uh, Munisteri shows his banjo plunking uh, skills here. Uh, so he gets a little banjo work in. And then Russell comes back in for another verse. Uh, and finally, the banjo takes it out over the tuba. So, uh, yeah, it, it's kind of transformed to be more New Orleans than the original version. You can uh, look up and listen to the original version, but you get a nice little New Orleans touch to it. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah, nice choice. Hmm. Track six, If I Could Be With You. Wow. Uh, James P. Johnson, uh, who was a kind of stride piano pioneer, uh, lyrics by Henry Creamer. Hmm. He's a dairy farmer or something. Uh, it goes back to 1927, uh, first recording uh, by Eva Taylor on lyrics. Uh, this one's got kind of a loping beat with a trombone intro. Uh, Munisteri stays on the banjo uh, from the previous tune onto this track for some nice plinking accompaniment. This was really short, <laughs> no sustained banjo. Uh, gets a nice rhythmic effect here under Russell's swooning vocal. And the trombone plays along, too. Uh, Sean Mason gives a nice old-time piano solo. We get a bluesy trombone solo from uh, Jean Allred with a little encouraging stop time thrown into it. And Russell comes back for another time through the vocals with a great phrasing. We end up with a nice sweet trombone lick. Uh, so, again, <laughs> she she has this uh, kind of uh, deep-digging uh song catalog kind of uh, repertoire that she brings something out that's surprising on all of her records uh, and is always uh, waiting to see what's coming next here. Uh, then we've got track seven, You Can Fly High, uh, Earl King and John Vincent Tune. Now, uh, King was a uh, important figure in blues and in uh, New Orleans rhythm and blues. Uh, this tune, original version, Ace Records, 1957. A little bit obscure. Mm. Uh, Russell starts it out alone, slowly, and then the horns riff in on a, a little bit more up-tempo, and then when the beat kinks in, it's uh, even faster yet to a kind of R&B uh, romping beat. There's a dirty tenor sax solo from uh, Arnson, and uh, Munisteri gets a guitar solo as well. Russell is having some real R&B fun here. Uh, I think she's shaking the tambourine on this tune as well. And she comes back for another verse. Uh, there's a, f a funky piano solo from Mark Shane. And uh, Russell joins in again uh, with more horns uh, pushing it to the finish. Uh, so a nice kind of uh, New Orleans influence rhythm and blues uh, fun tune here. Uh, track eight, we're going to get a uh, Jazz standard that has kind of an the composer has an interesting history anyway. East of the sun, yeah. west of the moon. Uh, yeah, I just want to say as if this album wasn't good enough already. This is really my favorite song. I really oh, okay. love hearing yeah. this. So I was really thrilled by this. Now, um, yeah. the composer of this tune, uh, Brooks Bowman, 
uh, was a budding songwriter and a scholar, really. He attended uh, Stanford and then transferred and graduated from Princeton. Uh, unfortunately, he was killed in a car accident just before his 24th birthday uh, in 1937. And now this tune, uh, East of the Sun, was first recorded by band leader Hal Kemp in 1934, and then years later uh, was made into a big hit, uh, of course, by Frank Sinatra, recording with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. Uh, and it's been a jazz standard ever since. Uh, Russell starts it out over the rubato guitar chords and arpeggios of Munisteri. It gets a medium tempo swing with the entrance of the rest of the rhythm section. Again, it's a joy to hear Russell's phrasing and uplifting voice on this standard. Uh, you've yes, heard this a hundred mm. times, but she makes it new and fresh. It's like yeah. a brand new hit song you heard on the radio, uh, the way she carries this melody. Uh, Munisteri gets a great guitar solo here. Uh, Tal Ronan has a nice bouncy bass solo. And then Russell comes back in, swinging it more loosely on uh, her final trip through here and carefree to the end. Uh, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. She just wonderful. inhabits and makes it like, you know, something you've never heard before. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, here, uh, track nine, In the Night. Uh, we're going to go a little more obscure. Uh, here, Norman Mapp. Uh, who was a jazz vocalist uh, and composer, uh, protege of Dinah Washington, who heard him singing in a club, uh, encouraged him to uh, write and sing more. Uh, he's had his songs recorded by Count Basie and uh, Betty Carter. Uh, this one uh, comes from uh, his 1961 album, Jazz Ain't Nothing But Soul. He's one of these guys who's got this deep baritone voice, like a Johnny Hartman kind of uh, voice. Uh, but probably most people won't be familiar with his tunes. Uh, anyway, it's a great one. A slow tune with a minor bluesy theme that gets a few harmonic twists through the melody. Uh, Russell brings out the blues in this one. We get some nice piano tinkling by Sean Mason here. Great thick horn arrangement with berry sax down on the bottom that sticks out. Uh, Mason gets a chimey and rolly piano solo over lazy berry sax low lines that just sort of uh, sit under the piano all on their own. Uh, Russell comes back and pushes it to a final climax and uh, interestingly resolves on an unexpected uh, major chord since most of the tune uh, is in that uh, minor kind of bluesy feel. Track 10, You Stepped Out of a Dream, uh, famous tune, uh, Nasio Herb Brown, uh, Gus Kahn, 1940 tune uh, that was a centerpiece of the 1941 musical's uh, Siegfried Girl. Uh, starts out with a Munisteri intro uh, over a bouncing swing beat. It's an uplifting melody. Russell makes it really soar. She knows how to build phrases and tension, but she always saves up for that climax in the tune. Uh, nice piano solo by Sean Mason here and Munisteri on guitar. Bouncy solos in the middle. Russell joins back in for another round. And then uh, Munisteri takes it out with some guitar improv over the ending vamp. Uh, we're going to get track 11 next. Blue and Sentimental, a Count Basie tune uh, co-writing 
Credits to Mac David, Jerry Livingston. This was recorded by the uh, Basie Band first in 1938. Uh, once more, 1947, uh, they had a vocal by Bob Bailey, and uh, Nat King Cole recorded it in the same year. And jazz fans will also know this uh, uh, as a title of a great jazz album by Ike Quebec, uh, tenor sax player from 1961. Uh, Mason gives a nice piano intro. The beat's lazy and laid back. Russell sings and swings it easily with a lilt. Uh, Mason gets to uh, kind of tinkle the blues nicely on a piano solo before he passes it over to uh, Monasterio as a tasty solo too. And then Russell comes back in on the B section, goes around the verse once more. Uh, it's got that nice bassy kind of uh, bluesy melody to it. Uh, track 12, another obscure tune, Sticks and Stones. Uh, it's got three songwriters credited, Kavanaugh, uh, Razaf, Palmer. Uh, this one goes way back to the 30s. Uh, Henry Red Allen and his orchestra, like 1936 or so. It was also uh, the title of a movie short uh with the music included in it from 1943. Uh, this one's got that great old-time swing feel to it. Uh, trumpet intro takes it into a nice swinging uh, feel with the rest of the horns uh, over to the piano with a bouncy rhythm, and then Russell comes swinging in on the tune. Uh, it's a fun swinging romp with solos from trombone, trumpet, piano, tenor sax, all appropriate to the style of that period of uh, 30s jazz. Uh, Russell comes in for another round to whoop it up uh, with some energy to the end. And uh, we end up with a million dollar smile. Uh, Porter Roberts and Lionel Hampton. Uh, this was first recorded in 1945 by Lionel Hampton and his orchestra. And I think uh, you can find instrumental versions of this and around the same time a vocal version with Lionel Hampton and uh, the great uh, Dinah Washington. Uh, it starts out with a slow groove and with rim clicks on the drum. Uh, acoustic guitar on this one by Munisteri uh, for an intro. Russell sings it with a smile that comes right through, fitting to the track title. Uh, nice piano fills from Mason on this. Uh, this tune has a lot of nice chord changes in the B section that sort of give it a feeling of modulating around uh, and lift it up. Uh, Munisteri gets a nice acoustic guitar solo here, and Russell rejoins after that on the B section and goes through it once more, uh, which slows down to a perfect finish. And when I heard this album... It's, I just want to say that she she bends her voice down away from the resolving note at the end. It was really mm -hmm. kind of a cool effect. It's gonna... very nice, yeah. So uh, with this one, when I heard it, I thought more of the same, <laughs> which is fabulous praise in the case of her, because uh, this is what she's doing, uh, mining kind of forgotten songs. Uh, she'll give you one well-worked jazz standard, but then some forgotten nuggets, and then also mixing in a healthy dose of old rhythm and blues tunes. Uh, sometimes, not on this album so much, but in the previous ones, some kind of suggestive and provocative uh, blues, wink-wink yeah. uh, lyrics uh, that are a lot of fun. Uh, all of which she has the voice to carry, uh, the appropriate style to bring the best out of, and then, uh, as I said, that sense of inhabiting a song, uh, making you feel and believe the lyrics. Uh, add to that, 
Uh, she's got this superb band that is orchestrated and arranged to match each tune for what it requires uh, for the appropriate historical style, but making them all sound and smell like they're fresh baked. Uh, and so, <laughs> and smell like they're yeah. baked. Oh my God. I can listen to as many recordings as she can find material of like this. Uh, yeah, me too. I'm, the, I'm in the same. Yeah. I'm in the same camp. Um, it, you say more of the same, but it's more of the same for her because no one else is yeah. doing this, no. and no one does it as well as her. No, uh, this is a real gift. I'm just really yeah. happy to. She's have giving it. you a musical lesson of uh, great American uh, music that's been lost in time uh, and reviving yeah. it. Uh, it's not, you know, this is not like nostalgia. You're just under the weight of the sheer amount of music that kind of comes after yeah. all of it, you know. This is just finding things mm. and uh, breathing fresh well, air into them, and they crank, all sound crank great, digging, as it were. Yeah. You know. Yep. Um, yeah, I thought at the end of the year, Russ and I, um, you know, pick our ten favorite. Like I'll pick the ten jazz albums I like the best that we did, and he'll pick the ten classical ones. And this one's, I mean, I only have nine picks left because this is definitely going to be at the top <laughs> yeah, of the this list. Will be on mine I just too. know it because we just love her, and she's yeah. Catherine Russell, and this is just such a great record. So that's yeah. definitely going to be on my list. You can kind of knock that one off your uh, checklist now. <laughs> yeah, she deserves um, it. She's she's just, um, yeah. I mean, she makes you feel good. If you're ever in a bad mood, you just put on. Catherine Russell um, and yeah, you're going to be joyous I yeah I, I think she must she must have that kind of uh, goodness in her soul and personality in order to be able to radiate that kind of energy uh, yeah. through songs so can't get enough of her <laughs> yeah fantastic I really like this record yeah. as we said yeah so there you go uh, that's my <laughs> I don't know when we'll get another I got a long vocalist but um you know, you so do, my you two, can do whatever you want. I mean, yeah, I can always do mm. that. But uh, yeah, of course, Catherine Russell. But uh, Liz Terrell, I'm pretty uh, excited about uh, that voice too. That's a voice I can listen to. I have to pick uh, that one up. I just so. checked. It's not on a CD yet, but oh, it looks okay. like it might come out soon. I okay. think I'll write to her and uh, tell her, hey, yeah, let's see. Get that out on CD. And, uh, Catherine we'll Russell, meanwhile, I ordered, I pre-ordered that and it hasn't gotten here yet. Things are really being held up. Okay. Yeah, and the, her last release, you know, that didn't come out on streaming for a long time, but I'm glad the new one came so out right away. So she's going the other way. That's good. I prefer yeah. things come out on CD first. Yeah, right? but uh, so this new one has just kind of come out right away, so on uh, both yeah. CD and streaming, so that's good. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's it. Uh, That's going to be it for this week. week here. Any uh, hints for next week? You got in the cauldron uh, there, stewing I, away. Well, next week is, um, well, things, people listen to these at uh, different days, but we will be recording on Easter Sunday. Ooh. And I've got I've got a few like classical, well, next week we'll have only one classical religious mm. kind of thing going. I want to kind of, I, uh, mm. oh, let me just mention just for listeners, um, I'm not going to talk about a, Bach, St. John Passion, or St. Matthew Passion this year, but two good ones did come out If you, in case you want to hear them. Uh, there's a St. John Passion by uh, John Elliott Gardner that's really fantastic on Deutsche Grammophon. You should give that a listen. And if you're looking for a new St. Matthew Passion, you should listen to the uh, one by Pygmalion, conducted by Raphael Pichon with a vocalist I really love on it. Sab Sabine Deviel is on it. Um, so that 
that's for your traditional Easter fare. But I've got mm. a cor- some British choral works by contemporary composers that I wanted to investigate further for next week. And there are one or two, because a lot of sort of um, religious choral works come out at this mm. time of year, and they that they you, know, you wind up kind of talking about them past Easter. So okay. maybe a few of those. We'll have one of those next week. And then I got a Baroque and a, a pretty interesting a horn. Uh, French horn uh, uh, oh, okay. chamber works disc. Actually, there might be an orchestra hmm. work on there too. I'm not sure. Hmm. All right, I'll see what I can yeah. find spiritually matching to the, the Easter season. Sunday. Let's see what yeah. we can do. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, some interesting music that we don't uh, always get to hear. Some viola and uh, other works and uh, vocal jazz that will round out episode 58 of. Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Uh, once again, uh, please remember you can find links to almost all the music except for the first recording, which was on Hyperion, not available on streaming, but everything else you'll be able to get to on Spotify and Apple Music or click on the whole episode playlist uh, available on Deezer. We can also follow us uh at uh, Adult Music Podcast as a username. Uh, Please do like and subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us on. And again, we'd like to thank Fast Signs of Staten Island for our wonderful neon glowing logo uh, that shows up nicely uh, on any platform that we're on and is on our business cards. So thanks again, guys, for that. And we'll see you again next week for episode 59, uh, recorded on Easter Sunday and available to download the next morning or that evening in the U.S. So until then, have a good week, and we'll see you again for the next episode. Mm